Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. It says going live. There we go, I think we're live. <laughs> Everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Thanks for joining us on this special live stream to discuss uh, the Ukraine war and the progress that has been made or not made so far from an air power point of view. Uh, joining me is Star Baby, as you can see. Uh, we'll do an intro with him in just a minute. Uh, but for the moment, I wanted to uh, issue some notams. Give me a second. So, I wanted to ask your support. There's a museum in Cornwall called the Cornwall Aviation Heritage Centre. Uh, it's at the former RF St Morgan site. Um, and it's a fantastic museum. I was there a couple of weeks ago. Um, they've got a bunch of open cockpits. Uh, it's uh, not quite the same stature as the Air Force Museum. Um, at Wright-Patterson in Ohio or even Cosford, uh, but it is a fantastic museum and the local county council in Cornwall is trying to close them down. So they've got a petition up and running. Uh, I wondered if you would visit their website, uh, go and sign the petition. You don't have to be, I don't think, a UK citizen, so anybody can do that uh, and that would be tremendously helpful. So uh, please do uh, go and, and show your support for those guys. Next on my list of uh, NOTAMs is just to say that this channel's free. I know I say that a lot. Uh, it must be getting a bit boring for some of you to hear, uh, but it's worth repeating because there's no adverts, including on this episode here. Uh, and so you can always donate. There's a, a description in the description. There should be a link to my uh, PayPal uh, tip jar, I think it's called, uh, and you can go and donate there if you want to. Uh, but the reason really I'm saying it is because I wanted to say thank you to those who in the last um, recent period of time have donated. So Tony, William, Arthur, Jack, Alexander, Colin, Joel, Thomas, a gent whose name I can't pronounce, Herove, I think it might be H-R-V-O-J-E, sorry, I can't pronounce your name, but thank you, Marcel and Andrew, all those people have donated. And normally I would send an email to each individual to say thank you, and I just haven't done that, so I'm being lazy using this as an opportunity to, to do so. Next no time is to say, join us on our Discord channel. It's been particularly busy of late. There's been quite a lot of activity. We've got a number of different um, groups or threads, you might call them on there, uh, including one that's dedicated to Ukraine. And Starbaby, although he's not really um, a social media fiend, is present there. And you can go, and if you're lucky extremely lucky you can go and interact with him directly on there he'll answer questions that you have so long as they're not in the ama bit in which case he knows he's not allowed to answer those questions because we save them for our interviews uh, and also uh, if you don't know what a cat is or you're not familiar with other domestic animals um, there's a bot there that will find those for you uh, 
accounts like this one here. There's a story behind that, but uh, we'll leave it at that. Okay, so to today, I'm going to ask you if you want to uh, take part in this discussion. We've already got some questions that have come in in advance on the Discord channel, so I have cut those out. We've got some themes going around things like intelligence, Western support, threat systems that we're going to use to sort of guide the conversation today. But but please do post your questions in the chat. I'll be looking at that while Starbaby is talking, uh, and I'll try and bring those out and put them into our list of questions for him to answer. I want to try and keep this to 90 minutes today. Uh, someone teased me earlier in the week by saying that um, – I said we'd do a short episode and we did 50 minutes. That is kind of short for us. Um, and uh, so, so 90 minutes may be an impossible task. But as I said to Starbaby over email earlier today, it's a stretch goal and everyone should set themselves stretch goals. Uh, and finally, before we get stuck in here, just please do like and share. It's really important that we get uh, the content out to as many people as possible. The YouTube algorithm has so far not been particularly kind to the channel, and maybe that's because it's the wrong format, and, and long format is not something that people really are as interested in as shorter formats. So maybe that's the reason why, and it doesn't necessarily reflect on my guests or myself. But at any rate, if you like and you share and if you comment um, and if you subscribe, then that tells YouTube that there's content that is worth listening to. And so that's my only ask, really. Please do that. Star Baby, that's the longest you've ever been quiet, I think, on any of the conversations that we've had. So my apologies for um, inconveniencing you in such a way. I'm aware that quite a few people on this will be, whether listening live or listening after the fact, will be familiar with you. But I think there is a good chance that there may be some who are not familiar with you. And I wondered if, therefore, you would be kind enough just to give us a two or three minute introduction as to who you are what your Air Force career is and um, you know, perhaps what your, I don't want to say qualifications, but perhaps what your background is that is going to inform your conversation with us today. Sure, no problem. Uh, the name is actually Mike Petruca. My call sign is Star Baby. Uh, I'm a retired Air Force officer, uh, aviator, and a regular warfare guy. So I started out flying the Mighty Phantom II, the Wild Weasel variant. And I'm actually the last American to get a thousand hours in the Phantom II, uh, which was nice. I transitioned to the Strike Eagle in the late 90s. Uh, and then I didn't like my next Air Force assignment, so I went into the Guard and Reserves and became an irregular warfare guy. So I got the opportunity to run around Iraq and Afghanistan with a rifle, which is not for everybody. And then I became, I got back into flying. I became one of the Air Force's light attack wizos, uh, flying in the AT-6 demo. And essentially now I sit back, I get to grow facial hair and talk to people on video streams about things I know a teeny tiny bit about because I, there's nothing I love more than a captive audience. <laughs> and that's Star Baby. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us again. I appreciate it. So the purpose, as I said right at the beginning of this conversation, is to talk about the, you, the invasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia. And in particular, our focus is on air power, although I'm sure you'll offer some thoughts. Uh, I know you want to talk about the counterattack that's going on at the moment, for example, but I'm sure you'll offer your thoughts on the land warfare aspects as, as we go through, Star Baby, if you want to. Um, there's a huge amount to unpack, and, and I think the first thing I would start by saying is that uh, per a comment we got when we did the teaser for this, we are aware that uh, Russia originally invaded 
um, Ukraine in 2014 and the annexation of Crimea. So, so we, we're aware of that. We don't want anyone to think that we're forgetting any history. But this really is a focus on the last six months, and it's a focus on on air power. And if you know, if Starbay wants to, he can take it in a slightly different direction. That's his call. Uh, I'm only really here to feed him questions. And um, you know, he's he's the uh, the uh, the sort of the director of of where the conversation goes. So with that said, Starbaby, do you want to start with perhaps offering uh, a high-level summary as to what you've seen in the last six months? I'm aware that you know when we talked about this originally, I linked to the article that you wrote for War on the Rocks. I'm hoping that people have read that. Um, you know, there's some good historical information there as well as sort of present-day assessment. Um, but what would you say about your thoughts on what's what's been happening in the last six months? Well, so sure. One of the things, and I, I spend a good bit of time trying to watch the Russians, but I'm handicapped by the fact that I'm not a Russian speaker. So I'm reliant on Google Translate, and that means that a lot of the data I pull in isn't video or audio in format, it's written. And and Russia has a, you know, a, a very uh, significant blogosphere, okay? military bloggers, both pro, mostly pro-government, but also a lot of hobbyists, just like the U.S. and Europe and uh, uh, Japan for so on. There's a lot of people that are really into this, and they attend shows, and they take pictures, and that is all, for lack of a better word, exploitable. And so what we, what I expected out of the Russian Air Force was that we were looking at a smaller Air Force that had been emerging as they brought new technology online that maybe had been a had had taken an approach that brought them more towards the way we expect the US to employ air power i was totally wrong that's not what happened um the way the russians have been employing air power is largely the way the russians have ever always employed air power which is flying artillery and that if you go back uh, in time, which we'll end up doing sometime in this podcast when I, I go back to the 1930s and explain the progression of Russian air power development. But you'll find that Russian air power is still fundamentally viewed as a supporting arm for Russian ground power. And because the Russian way of war is artillery centric, from a Russian perspective, the use of aircraft as flying artillery makes perfect sense, and it fits with their mindset and it fits with their way of fighting. It just squanders a lot of air power potential, which in this case is great. Uh, and they have done a really lousy job uh, from the very beginning at employing their air power, and they have lost a significant amount of it. Although it looks like more of it has just been effectively suppressed. So this is a weird case where the air power of a major combatant who in theory should have an air power advantage. So Russia should have an air power advantage over Ukraine. And it looks that way on paper, but it's not that way uh, when it actually comes to combat ops. The Ukrainians are better trained. They have more hours and they adjust much more rapidly than the Russians have. And it looks to me like, in terms of air power, the Russians are in a force preservation mode where they're going to not take any risks uh, with their tactical air power. And that's why for the last six or eight weeks, what you've seen of Russian air power is sorties in areas they thought they had under control for ground attack aircraft, again, doing flying artillery, and bombers lofting cruise missiles from Russian and Belarusian 
uh, Belarusian airspace. So, you know, the quick and dirty is it's not what most analysts, including me, expected. Uh, it's very poor performance, and we'll I'll unravel some of the things that we've learned along the way because people are going to ask questions and it's naturally going to come out. But the key takeaway is that we can look at all these fancy airplanes and say, oh, you know, the Russians have a Su-34 and it's, you know, it's a great arrangement. It even has a bathroom in it, which, by the way, I really appreciate from an aircraft design standpoint. Two-seat fighter with a bathroom. Yeah, um, United States Air Force, take notice. And uh, but how did you employ that? How does that work? Um, are those fancy multifunction displays actually just crappy TV screens um, that have been repurposed. Uh, what are they doing for you? How have you done your your design, your interface, and how are you working in an air campaign? Who are your air campaign planners? You know, what's your targeting scheme looks like? So the danger of mirror imaging and doing capabilities-based analysis where you say they have this capability on paper, therefore they must be able to use it well, that's turned out to be garbage. Um, they have an interesting capability on paper which does maybe used to sell them aircraft on the international arms market, but it didn't apparently grant them a first-rate combat capability. So with that said, as an overly complicated uh, introduction in which I only took one breath, let's start hitting some questions. Okay, do, do you want to... Um, I can see this, the, the uh, chat is lit up, which is fantastic news. Thank you, everybody, for engaging. I'm going to go through... And start pulling out some of those questions. But do you want to talk briefly about the counterattack before I ask you the first question? How do you want to play that? Sure. Uh, let's just say that my I I've been following the counterattack like lots of people. I'm kind of glued to information sources and really a counteroffensive. And I I don't want to dissect this because there's a somewhat of a deliberate open source blackout, particularly in the South. But we are getting p bits and pieces, and it looks like the Russian lines in Kharkiv o Oblast and south of it, uh, especially towards uh, Sverdonetsk and around uh, Izrum, looks like the Russian lines have collapsed. The maps are changing. Even Russian-generated maps are changing so quickly that it's like the Ukrainians can't safely advance quickly enough in order to keep up with the Russian retreat. And so I just want to express my my admiration for all the folks that supported Ukraine and particularly for the men and women at the pointy edge who are not watching this right now and are never going to. Uh, you folks have my eternal admiration. I am humbled by the professionalism and the capability and the dedication of Ukraine's defense establishment. Okay, so Slabi, we're going to start by talking about threats because uh, just to explain to the audience at home, all I did was just put a bunch of themes together and, and uh, grab some of the questions off the Discord and put them in here. Uh, we d I don't do live streams very often. This isn't my thing. I've got no one helping me. So I'm trying to listen to Starbaby at the same time as pull out questions from the chat. So it might feel a little bit disjointed. I apologize at home. Starbaby, I apologize to you if it looks like I'm not listening to you. I'm trying. But the most important people are the audience at home anyway. So so let's ask the first question then. So this is from uh, Maximum Shenke or Maxim Uh So Russian seed versus Western seed. How have they done it? Are they any good at it? And um, well, let's just start with that. How have the Russians done it? And do you think they're any good at it? Okay. So the, the Russian approach to 
suppression of enemy air defenses is like the Soviet approach. Okay? It has not really adapted since the time. And one of the things that has puzzled me, and I know it's puzzled other people too, is that when we looked at modern Russian capabilities, we looked back at Soviet capabilities, which we had some good insight to. After the fall of the wall, we got tons of technical manuals, translated them, we read them, we, you know, veterans posted accounts of how things work. And I had made the assumption that the Russians had moved on from that. And they haven't. They've devolved. They're, the capabilities that we would expect to see from Soviet-era assets are not working out like we would expect to have seen them in Soviet times. So the way you did seed in Soviet times was you used the KH-31 Krypton missile. And this is roughly equivalent to an AGM-78 uh, standard arm, which was used in Vietnam. It was our second anti-radiation missile. And it was just a, a missile that you shot from a distance against a target that you expected would be emitting and you hoped it homed in on your target. And it moved pretty quick, and it had a pretty decent range. And what you would have, usually the launcher would be a Su-24 Fencer, specifically a, a model called the Fencer E, which was the electronic reconnaissance version, which had a lot of extra boxes and a couple pods added on that allowed it to be somewhat of an elint bird. Um, it was actually pretty neat. And they had squadrons of those that were also Russian, but they had some Fencer E's uh, based in East Germany. And so we would expect those guys to get airborne, look at the Elint environment, and shoot a missile at targets where they were pretty certain where they were going to be, uh, based on their own intelligence gathered by other means. I would never have expected to see a very adaptive uh, harm shooter like an F4G Wild Weasel or an F-16 CJ. And I would have expected to see things being much more pre-planned this is what we're going to do. These We're looking for these cues, and we see these cues. We execute this plan. Very much if then, as opposed to the way I would brief a weasel flight uh, today uh, or back in the day when, uh, uh, when we had F4G capabilities. So to expand on that, um, you know, I'll talk about F4Gs is when we went to support a strike package, we would know where they were going to be, when they were going to be, what they were going to hit, hit, what kind of airplane they had, what kind of munitions they were using, what their deliveries looked like, and what their timing was. So that's what you need to support a strike package. And let's assume that we've only got a two-ship. So I'm in the lead aircraft. I've got a wingman. We're going to divide up the threats. So I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to take SA-2s, SA-6s, and SA-8s, and you're going to take... Um, no, I'd take SA Sus and Sixes. You'll take threes, eights, and alphas. Alpha meaning triple A. Uh, and that would be a quick division. Those are the capabilities that, that we're going to have. And I know that he's going to be responsible for those threats. And we are going to target the threats when they come up that are a threat to the strike package. And it may be that we're in front, okay? First in, last out, basic wild weasel stuff. And we're, we call it stimulating the threat. And so we'll stimulate the threat, and ideally the threat will come up on us rather than the strike aircraft, and then we'll kill it. That I don't expect and would never have expected the Soviets to execute because that's not the way they train their aviators, and it's not the way they execute their plans. So I think that's the key difference. Their, their KH-31s were never as good as a harm. Um, they are largely this appear to be the same missile that they were in the 90s. 
Uh, and the the Ukrainians claim that they shot down a couple of cruise missiles or a couple of KH-31s that were aimed at their radars, although they also admit that they took some damage from the KH-31s. So it still works. It, the, it will still get hits. But the aware enemy, once the Ukrainians became more aware of the KH-31 threat, the reports of damage trickled off, understanding, of course, that the Ukrainians are not obligated to report uh, any battle damage they have, and the Russians probably don't have the means of determining how well their shots went. So Low Speed High Drag has asked, uh, he says, hi guys, question for Starbaby. So do recent events in Ukraine support the idea that air defense suppression while weasels harm EW should be considered part of the air superiority mission like air-to-air? Yes. And technically, under U.S. doctrine, suppression of air, enemy air defenses is a part of offensive counter-air. Um, so is airfield attack, by the way. That is also offensive counter-air. It is absolutely an offensive counter-air role. And I think we saw that in Kherson in the south. So the Kherson Oblast in the south, which is uh, north of Crimea, and is anchored by the town of Kherson. It has the, the uh, Dnieper River running through it. That's where the Ukrainians telegraphed their southern counteroffensive. And that's where they said that really they were going to conduct some defense suppression. And just reports emerged in open sources over the last 72 hours. It said that two SA-400 or S-400 complexes, so SA-20s, 21s, were destroyed. Uh, and I've seen video of uh, a Ukrainian drone monitoring the destruction of a, of a support depot where the ammunition, the missiles were stored. And stored is a loose term. They were piled by the side of a road. And it's great. When one of those goes off as a secondary explosion, it's like a, uh, you know, it's kind of like a cardboard tube that squirts fire out of both ends. It's hugely entertaining and very distinctive. And boy, big missiles make big flares. So, you know, it's definitely an offensive counter-air but the Ukrainians seem to have mixed it uh, with a number of methods of destroying the SAMs and radars, but it's definitely part of a counteroffensive. Speaking of S-300, S-400 then, um, Exchequer had asked on the Discord channel about the supposed greatness and all-round supremacy of those systems, and you've just talked about the dangers of that sort of qualitative-type analysis. Um He's asking, you know, he doesn't, you're always cautious about what you say, but he's basically asking, what can you tell us about, you know, how those systems could be exploited? Are they exploitable? Is it within the grasp of the Ukrainians to do that, do you think? I mean, there was the fairly well-known reported instance of that Su-27 being downed over Ukraine, apparently by a system maybe based in Belarus. I don't know if that's true. Um, what, what, what can you say about that system and uh, its defeatability technically it's a very good and very capable system and i am personally frightened of it uh, uh when we we graduated i graduated from iwo school in 1989 and we used to summarize the iwo school in two sentences boats are bad and stay away from the sa-10 <laughs> which is an s-300p and if you got nothing other than that at an EWO school, those were key pieces of information. Those were Soviet operators. 
not modern Russian operators. And so what I can say about the SA-10 uh, is that the Ukrainians seem to be getting better performance out of their older SA-10 systems than the Russians are getting out of their SA-20s and, uh, 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 and later. It's their S-300 PMU-2, uh, their S-400 kind of batteries. The Ukrainians have the old stuff and they seem to be getting better performance out of it. So I think training. I don't think that technically that we have overrated those weapon systems. I think they are extremely lethal in the right hands and if properly maintained. What we have discovered across the Russian defense enterprise is that they are not uh, well maintained. Their troopers are not well trained. They do not do live fire. And that they are not even, the, the Russians today are not using Soviet shoot and scoot. They tend to go and sit. Now I can understand that you might not shoot and scoot if you were an SA or an S300 battery in Kaliningrad and all your hinges rusted in the up position. I would completely understand why you didn't shoot and scoot for you know a battery that literally drove into southern Ukraine as part of the invasion and set up for guys to sit there where Ukrainians call in and say, look, there's an S400 right here, come get it. And then the Ukrainians come get it, which is apparently what has happened. I can't understand why the Russians dumped all of their accumulated knowledge and skill uh, in that particular area. I will make one point, one complete uh, thing that completely surprised me is I did not know that the S-300 has a ground-to-ground mode. I never would have imagined that it had a ground-to-ground mode. Uh, and that has emerged in Ukraine. And, and, you know, old Russian guys have come out and said, yeah, we designed that in. And so if you want to send a really expensive presumably high-tech missiles to do stupid stuff and do inaccurate service-to-service delivery. I don't want to encourage that kind of stupidity because people do get hurt, but I couldn't have imagined anything that dumb. Can you just briefly, Starbaby, expand on that answer a little bit in the sense that you said you, you can't understand why the Russians have just dumped that knowledge. Why do you think? I mean, this sort of ties in with a question somebody else has asked, uh, I guess sort of more generally around... Uh, if I can find the question. Um, yeah, more generally around sort of Russian non-presence on the battlefield. So Patrick Beck, 68, had asked to what extent you think the Russian Air Force being AWOL um, has to do with their inability to plan and generate an ATO. Do you think that's at the heart of it? Okay, so let's not lose that question because that'll be a separate question. But um, no, I... I, I it, let me just say that that's kind of unaccessible from where I sit. And I hate to make an unaccessible call, but that's the most realistic answer is I, I can't tell whether or not what kind of planning effects you might have done from an air defense perspective, because I don't really know how to plan uh, air defense operations. I know how to plan the airspace and how to integrate it, but I don't know how, I, I don't know that from an air defense operator standpoint. But I would would suspect that the reason there are a couple reasons that uh, that the capability that the Russians would have had from their doctrine and training um, has dropped off is one is money. If you're not doing live exercises or if you're doing overly simplistic exercises, you might not get the training to understand or utilize the, the full capability of your system. If you are not maintaining it well, it might you might be worried about if I move it, I'll break it. 
And so you sit in place. The the Russians are not the only ones that are guilty of this. The United States Air Force uh, cut back on live fire training, and it hurt us. It hurt us in, in the Balkans, and it, uh, it hurt us in Iraq. And at the same time, later, after the 2011 sequestration budget cuts, the U.S. Air Force dropped the hour requirements. We went down to the point where we were getting as many flying hours as the North Koreans were in some squadrons. And that hurts. So it, I think it emphasizes that warfare is a human endeavor. And if you want good performance out of your systems, you have to prepare, train, and support your people so they deliver good performance. You know, equipment does not fight wars. Equipment is used by people to fight wars with. Um, and then the other half of that question is with respect to the Russian Air Force rather than the Air Defense Force. It's Russian Aerospace Forces, I think, the more correct term. In terms of their inability to plan. And this is the long answer where I go back to the 1930s. I think the inability to plan comes alongside the preferred use of air power operations. So let me let me scoot off on this. In the 1920s and 30s, the Russians were like everybody else in air power. It was emerging. They had a couple airplane designers who were talented. They were setting up their industrial capacity. They had their new flyers. They did new things with air. And the Russians sent a bunch of observers to the, uh, and in fact, really combatants, to the Spanish Civil War, like everybody else did. And they watched the Germans at work. That was the, the Luftwaffe's air power testing zone was the Spanish Civil War. And so the Russians learned. They, they learned what the possibilities were in ways that they hadn't conceived. And they came back to Russia and they started to write about it. And then in 1939, the, the Russians invaded Finland and they got nothing out of their air power. Uh, what they actually got was to give the Finns the highest per capita number of fighter aces of any country in the world ever. And the Finns did it with obsolete aircraft, including obsolete you know, German aircraft, but old stuff. They downed a lot of Russian uh, aircraft and Russian air power was not effective at all in the, the winter war. And the Russians didn't make an adjustment. In fact, it continued to go downhill because Stalin in 1940, 41, and 42 was busy purging all the officers that had learned things in the Spanish Civil War. And so he purged a bunch of those guys. Their expertise left. And when Operation Barbarossa kicks off in 1942, which is the Russians being invaded by the Nazis, uh, the Luftwaffe destroyed the Russian Air Force in 72 hours. They caught aircraft on the ground. They shot down everything they saw. And after that, the, the Luftwaffe devolved to what it was designed to do, which was to be tactical support on the front. And when the Russians got air superiority back, they did exactly what the Germans had done. They, they used it as a tactical air support tool, as flying artillery and support of the ground forces. There was no strategic bombing campaign by the Germans because they didn't have the aircraft to reach the critical strategic targets east of the mountains in Russia. And the Russians never really uh, had the weight of metal to do a strategic bombing campaign. They left that to the Royal Air Force and the US Army Air Forces. 
Uh, there is a report, by the way, that the Russians did actually successfully bomb a sausage factory in Germany, uh, which is definitely a war crime. But I have not uh, been able to confirm the details of that. So as we go through Russian history post-World War, they have never had to execute an air campaign. They have never been hurt by somebody who is executing an air campaign. So with that in mind, what's broken? What's broken is when you go to the Georgian War in 2008, you realize your airborne artillery sucks and your drones suck. So you build some airborne artillery spotting and you build some better drones and you fix those holes that you've identified. But again, the holes you're fixing are within the paradigm you have that your air power is flying artillery. And if you're going to use it like artillery, we the, the Western military forces talk about massing forces. The Russians write about massing fires. So they don't necessarily, you, know, you because they're an artillery-centric army. Remember that in most NATO countries, artillery supports armor and infantry. In the Russian model, your armor and your infantry support your artillery. And so, again, air power comes in, flying artillery is just another way of delivering fires. And that's what we see. And if that's your way of using it, you never develop the guys who know how to look at an air campaign, build a master attack, a master air attack plan, uh, look at campaign stages, select your targets, uh, and build and feed an air tasking order, and even an airspace coordination uh, order. How do you build the expertise in doing that? You build it by doing it. And they have had no needs to do it. And even today, the Russians have still not been seriously hurt by an adversary executing an air campaign. So kind of a long answer to a bunch of questions, I think, rolled up. That's a good answer, I think. Um, what about, I suppose, Syria would have potentially lulled them into a sense of false security, do you think? I mean, they were so successful at, well, I say they were, I mean, they leveled cities, didn't they? That was their thing in Syria. Do you think that sort of lent them an air of superiority? Do you think they came out of that thinking then when they were going to go and take a take a pop at Ukraine, they thought they were the big I am? I thought they, they came to the impression that they were better than they were, and I also think they gave Western observers a mistaken impression of what they were actually capable of doing. So if you look at the, the Russians, sorry, the Soviets in the 90s, wanted to develop two systems. Sorry, this is boring. One of them is reconnaissance strike system, and the reconnaissance strike system was your operational level system for delivering long-range fires, largely with missiles. And your reconnaissance fire system is the system that ties together your artillery and your short-range stuff. So what it looked like in Syria was that the Russians were putting all the pieces together in a reconnaissance strike. They had a forward planning team, uh, that was, uh, they would rotate folks in and they would ask for fires and the Russians would shoot cruise missiles from ridiculous distances. They shoot them out of the Mediterranean, they shoot them out of the Caspian Sea, they overfly Iran and Iraq, they hit targets in Syria, they shot them from bombers, uh, probably, you know, close to northern Iraq, possibly over Armenia or Azerbaijan. Uh, I wasn't tracking those shots. They took a bunch of long range shots, but what did they hit? 
did they plan on an air campaign where they were treating the Islamic State as a state and trying to dismantle its elements of state control? Or were they hitting a bunch of targets that needed to be blown up so that the Russians could complete their their method of taking cities, which is simply to demolish them? So I would argue that the Russian air campaign planning would have, might have appeared, if you were mirror imaging, to be an air campaign when in reality it was long-range demolition without the planning and foresight that goes into a campaign plan. So one thing that you've mentioned a couple of times, I, I think it's come up in the chat, the live chat, and I apologize to the person who asked it because I don't see it immediately and I see that the the number of questions is building, so I'm not going to try and find it. But you you talked about the sort of modus operandi then of air power as sort of, um, you know, sort of airborne artillery. And we can see now, I don't know whether or not this question belongs in threats or if it belongs in tactics or a doctrine, our themes in those regards, but we can see now that uh, on both sides there's a lot of that uh, sort of scooting low, I suppose, because of the um, sort of long-range radar threat and the manpad threat popping up, shooting a bunch of rockets, presumably a few kilometres, and then diving back down while sort of dispensing flares. What is that all about? And one of the other questions that I know is in the chat, and I'm again, I apologise to the person who asked it because I can't call you out for asking it, but I was wondering it myself, is would the influence that the Ukrainians have had over time by training with things like the Air National Guard in the US mean that they should be doing things slightly different? Oh, see, you don't want to necessarily say that they should be doing slightly different. Okay, that's kind of, you know, that's that's Western and particularly American chauvinism. And I realize, of course, you're not an American. So, um, yeah, so... No, it means that they could be doing some things different uh, if all other things were equal. So, for example, we'll take your lofted rocket shot where you see a helicopter in particular come in low, jack the nose up, fire off two pods of rockets, put the nose back down and go away. That's just massed artillery fire. And it's about the most inaccurate way to deliver those rockets. So the, the name for a number of the Russian air-delivered rockets that the Russians gave to them uh, in Afghanistan was chrysanthemum. Now, admittedly, they name a bunch of their stuff after flowers, but it was named chrysanthemum because when you triggered off a rocket pod full of stuff, it went all in this exploding flower direction, and you didn't actually get quite the effects on what you thought your target were that you wanted to get on what you thought your target was. So, but if that's all you have, and it's a trade-off between distance and survivability. What that loft maneuver gets you, a loft always gets you distance away from the threat. And if you're looking at a big area target, like, say, a Russian ammunition dump or a dispersed artillery battery or something like that, it's probably worth taking a shot. But I wouldn't expect good results. You're kind of rolling the dice and hoping hoping to get a seven. Uh, and, you know, not necessarily coming up with that. So there are some things where your tactics are going to be driven by the equipment and the the ordnance you have. There are other areas where the Ukrainian pilots adapted very rapidly, and low altitude is one of them. So what I've seen, and I, I pay particularly close attention to them because I, I fly low altitude myself now. I've seen helicopters in the teens of feet above the ground. Seen Su-25 frogfoots, frog feet seen frog feet 
at 50 feet and I've seen MiG 29s at 100 feet. So they have clearly adapted and moving down uh, moving down to avoid the radar threat. Uh, and man pads are always a threat, but you make your trade off, right? So man pad has an itty bitty warhead. Uh, you know, the guy has to hear you coming. It's very, if, if you're at 100 feet, by the time the guy with a man pad knows you're there, if he's not part of an integrated command and control system, you're gone before he can bring the thing up to his shoulder, you know, uncage the seeker, super elevate the, the tube, you know, do an IFF check. I hope he's doing an IFF check. And, uh, you know, listen for a tone and squeeze the trigger. And you could well be gone because not because you're any faster than you are low down high, but because your line of sight rate is quicker. Hmm. So if, you know, if you're watching a road and if you're a hundred feet from a highway and all these cars are going by at hundred KPH, they don't seem like they're going that fast. If you walk up and stand on the other side of the guardrails, everybody's going by like that. That's what being at low altitude gets you is it turns you into the category of people that are going by like that. Uh, and that's where even trees, you know, give you cover uh, because you're just gone too quickly. So uh, the Air Force came out of this is a whole different thread. The Air Force, U.S. Air Force came out of Desert Storm thinking we will never go low again. But the textbook weapons guy answer has never changed. You will go low anytime the threat, the terrain, the weapon, the delivery, the tactic or the weather force you to go low. And the Ukrainians have adapted to that by going lower and making the decision to go low quicker than their Russian adversaries did. What's the impact of that, do you think? It shortens your engagement range because you don't you, you don't have altitude. You're all your if you're doing going air to air, your uh your missiles have to climb against a higher target and you're shortening your range. You're shortening the time available in all respects. You're actually gaining you're probably gaining down your radar because your radar will actually the are called side lobes. So we think of the radar as looking out in front with this nice little beam. It's true, but a radar also throws side lobes out to the side and they bounce off the ground and put interference into your radar. Uh, so when you are lower, most airborne radars will actually make themselves a little, uh, It's uh, they will gain down. So it's kind of like taking that, that, that variable light switch you have on the wall and turning your light down in order to avoid getting all the uh, the extra interference. That's an imperfect analogy, but it'll do. So that means also your detection range is going to be shorter because your radar isn't going to see as far. Uh, that's one effect, and everything becomes much more compressed, it, particularly if you're doing an air-to-ground delivery. If you're doing an air-to-ground delivery, you don't have a lot of time to acquire that target, put the airplane on target, and deliver your weapons. It's not like sailing in at medium altitude at 24,000 feet and I've got a radar designation on the target from 38 miles, and then I pick up the target in the pod at 10, and I don't have to release till four, that's tons of time. Uh, I've done low altitude attacks in Wales where literally I had eight seconds from where I came up the river around the bend to see, it's actually the bridge next to Conwy Castle uh, was the training target that day. And literally, I had eight seconds from when I had a clear line of sight to the bridge to the weapons release range that I needed to 
identify the target, pick my aim point, uh, designate the target, uh, pilot releases the weapons, and now I've got more time, but eight seconds. It's the quickest I've ever done a simulated release. That was bad planning. (laughs) (laughs) I felt fairly studly afterwards, but it was still bad planning. So you hit it. Simulated hit. I mean, right, because the the Welsh would be pissed if we dropped one of their bridges. Uh, Particularly one that's next to a cultural object. So Wales, uh, one of the things when you're flying in Wales, you never overfly a Welsh cultural festival uh, at low level in the summer because, I mean, you will get hammered for it. Uh, So I can only imagine uh, what you would do, what the the kerfuffle from damaging Conwy Castle uh, with bomb fragments. That would be just, they'd be pissed. So, so we're sort of talking tactics now, which is handy because that was my second theme. And um, Carol Boisino, uh Carol, my apologies for mispronouncing your name, asked how Ukraine even has flying MiGs and Sus left so far into the invasion. Is that because of Russian ineptitude or is that amazing work by Ukraine with Western intel? Yes. So, <laughs> it's, no, literally, it's both. So... Get back to planning an air campaign. The first thing you should be doing in your planning an air campaign is you should be looking to gain air superiority. And that means you want to do as much dismantling of the adversary air defense system as you can. And that means you hit airfields, you hit radars, and the Russians did that. They hit fixed uh, um, radar sites. And we definitely saw wreckage come across, pictures of burning wreckage come across Twitter on the first day. Uh, they attempted to attack this, that, and the other thing, including catch Ukrainian aircraft on the ground. But the Ukrainians noted later, it's like, yeah, we dispersed. So they moved their stuff from where they thought it was most vulnerable to where it was not the most vulnerable, but still operational. And there doesn't appear to have been a loop. So it was like the Russians opened the attack they, in, they want to catch Ukrainian aircraft on the ground, but they didn't. So what do you do? Will you find them and reattack? That doesn't appear to have happened. Uh, you didn't see the weight of effort. This is not like Battle of Britain where you keep hitting airfields until the airfields go away, which, you know, Goering made the mistake of taking the pressure off uh, Fighter Command's airfields. That was a Russian mistake. They should have been after and stayed after the Ukrainian Air Force until it was no longer a threat. Now, the Ukrainians would have made that hard for, for them because they they it's apparently their ways to make things as difficult as possible for the Russians and good on them. And so it is clear in retrospect that Ukrainian pilots were better trained and more tactically adept than their Russian counterparts. So how do you gain effective air superiority against guys that are better than you? I don't know the answer to that question. It's going to be rough. Single Sprocket has asked, why do you think that we haven't seen US-sponsored Ukrainian ARPAZs doing seed and carrying harm? What's an ARPAZ? Remotely piloted aircraft system. It's a Ah, drone. um, Because it's too damn big a missile because it's too big an asymmetric load problem. So the missile's 800 pounds and 12 or 14 feet long. I don't remember. Uh, and it is rail-launched, and it is designed to be rail-launched from a fighter. So 
one of the things, if you don't have enough airflow over the control fins, when you launch your missile, you will tumble it. It does not have the control authority to stay level. So from the harm uh, perspective, that was designed to be launched from a fighter. You have to have a certain airflow. It has a minimum launch speed that is well above uh, what an RPA can deliver. And I suspect it will tumble if you launch at a lower speed. The other thing is, is if you're on an RPA, you know, uh, uh, an aircraft that is not used to flying with one wing, 800 pounds heavy, what do you do with the second harm? You shoot a harm, now one wing is 800 pounds heavy. I'll tell you what you do. You spiral into the ground. So those are reasons one and two. Uh, you would just have to design a more fighter-like uh, autonomous or remotely piloted aircraft with fighter-like performance in order to get that. The Israelis took the Shrike missile and they used it as a ground-to-ground anti-radiation missile. But in order to do that, they had to add a booster to the Shrike. So they used a much longer rocket booster and a rail and they mounted it on top of a Sherman tank hull. And they shot this sucker up a rail that is probably 16 feet long. Hmm. So call it five meters. And that booster kept the whole construct stabilized until the, the wings on the Shrike had enough velocity to bite air. And the booster dropped off and the Shrike did its thing. Okay. So um, there's a good good question from Low Speed High Drag. It's about doctrine, so we're kind of I don't want to bounce backwards and forwards between tactics and doctrine, but I do want to just ask this, and then we'll we'll put doctrine behind us. But he asks if Russian doctrine forces is supporting artillery, um, and that's held them back in Ukraine. How has the Duhay Mitchell doctrine of strategic bombing held back the USAF from greater capability? Any thoughts on that? Ooh, um... it's a wild card that one. It's a wild card. So let's let's categorize that by saying that Duhay was a war criminal in the making. Okay, Duhay advocated air power so that you could fly over enemy defensive forces and slaughter civilians in their homes. He advocated aerial delivery of chemical weapons. He advocated staggering your attacks so you caught the firefighters um, on the second wave. Uh, the guy was a dick. And so um, let's not mix him up with Billy Mitchell, okay, who, who, uh, by all accounts, was an excellent human being. So the strategic air power has, has held back the Air Force, I think not from a Second World War sense, but from a Gulf War sense. Um, the Air Force did learn things from uh, the Second World War, although to look at Vietnam, you wouldn't be able to tell necessarily. But it kept a focus on what is a center of gravity, to use Clausewitzian terms, that I can attack from the air that will affect the conduct of the war? And if you read the air power reports for both the Pacific and the European theaters after the Second World War, you'll find in both both cases the assessors who put years, hundreds of man years into these documents that the U.S. did not have the knowledge of the enemy as a system in terms of the industry in order to effectively target the industry. They did not have the knowledge of an enemy system in terms of raw material flows in order to effectively interdict, interdict those. So it's not that strategic air power theory as a theory has handicapped the United States. It's that the application of that theory appropriately is a whole lot harder than it would seem to be on paper. 
We've got a couple of questions that have come in here, Star Baby, that are similar sort of in theme. So Casimir and uh, Jean, F15CM, on the Discord channel have asked very similar questions. So um, you know, Casimir has, has asked about the fact, as you've described, the VKS following this um, flying artillery approach, whether they're more likely to now adopt a more dynamic mission set. And uh, Jean, I love this question, just asked, what are the chances that the Russians internalize all the you're doing it wrong messages and get their shit together. Um, is there any outcome that is likely that would include them realizing the error of their ways and being able to change with enough rapidity for it to make a difference in this conflict, this war? Oh, not with enough rapidity. Um, the system is simply too rigid, uh, and the Russians will and have made observable tactical changes. They've changed the way they employ fighters. For example, they're not employing them over Ukrainian territory. It's not really true. The frog feet are definitely flying over Ukrainian territory. Um, and every once in a while, some uh, a, a Su-34 gets bagged uh, by a Ukrainian uh, air defense battery. So there's an element of adaptation. But when you look at large-scale cultural adaptation, that's not a short-term Russian cultural skill set. And if you wanted to look at non-military stuff, you would you might reasonably take a look at the Russian educational system, which is very technically focused, very science and math oriented, but does not encourage a learning or exploration culture. You have to be willing to be wrong. And then the last aspect of why it's not going to happen is because I fully expect the Russians to shoot a whole bunch of general officers uh, as a result of this debacle. And they're going to be left with guys just like in the Stalinist era who their primary mission in life will be to lay as low as possible. They will not generate a Mitchell. They will not generate an Olds. They will not uh, uh, generate a Warden. And they will certainly not generate a star baby. And with all of that uh, in line, how are you going to determine what kind of change is going to be made, move on, make the organization realize it? I will tell you, after years and years of trying and sometimes failing to push change inside the U.S. Air Force, it's very difficult for even a Western organization to do quickly. Um, I am thrilled that my writings on you need to pay better attention to low altitude flight to avoid the, the serious radar threat, those were years ago. And to see that, that the Ukrainians think that that was right and have demonstrated that that was a correct approach, I think is great. But there was a lot of opposition on, on that. And so you have to grow a bunch of people who are willing to swim upstream. And the Russian military system and their educational system does not grow, does not train, does not value people who are willing to swim upstream. Uh, neither really does the U.S. Air Force, but they they at least um, don't send them to Siberia. Yeah. I saw a quote today on, on Twitter about uh, the Russian media struggling to um, sort of adequately discuss the advances for the, from the counterattack and then this idea that uh, there were Russians, as you described, running away faster than the Ukrainians could actually catch up with them. And the, the, the quote that had come out was, to tell people not to panic and to remind them that Stalin said people who panic need to be shot so that kind of gives you an indication as to the mentality 
Uh, it it does, and it's all right to say you don't need to panic, but how do you reconstitute your forces? How do you take lessons learned from a loss, tactical or strategic, and put that all back together again? Uh, again, one of the problems with the Russian ground forces is that they treat their own people so badly that they started this conflict with the enlisted folks not trusting their officers, with their you know senior enlisted folks essentially preying on junior enlisted folks, um, with the oligarchs and their minions siphoning money away and out so the training doesn't happen, equipment's not what it's supposed to be. You, when you have this whole structure that is designed for the powerful to prey upon the less powerful, how do you build a professional military out of that? How do you build an educational system out of that? How do you get cultural change? It's not easy. And that is another thing that we should look at in terms of countries that came out of the Eastern Bloc, like Poland and like Ukraine is showing now, where they came out of you know being under the thumb of the Soviets for so long and they had to make and successfully made major cultural changes, but it was not easy. If you look at the Ukrainian military, there were a lot of senior officers who were fired after 2014 because they couldn't adjust. And I, I can't remember, oh yes, it was in Afghanistan when I was doing some advisory work to support the Afghan National Army Air Corps before it was even the Afghan Air Force. One of the Afghan generals explained to me, he said, I have to get the old guys out of the system because they stifle innovation and the young guys are legitimately afraid of them and I cannot move the force forward under those conditions. One of the questions that's come through uh, on the chat and we had previously from Exchequer and maybe some others on the Discord channel was the question around um, high level, medium altitude, high altitude dominance by the Russians I wanted to ask you anyway about the distinction between air superiority, air supremacy. You've already talked about the MiG-29 guys learning quickly, going low um, in order to, to um, sort of counter that threat. Um, and then you've referenced the Russians now not flying particularly often over Ukrainian soil. What is going on in the air? Who does have superiority? It Does such a thing exist? And if not, where is air supremacy being built and, and by whom do you know? So air supremacy happens pretty much when your adversary's ability to contest control of the air disappears. Uh, you may start out with air supremacy, like the U.S. did in Afghanistan, right? Uh, but we really, we talked about air supremacy. We didn't experience it really until the Gulf War, first Gulf War. And that took a bunch of hard fighting over the first couple of days before we thought we had air supremacy. Air superiority and this isn't the official definition, right? But think of air superiority as being able to, you know, conduct an individual mission in an environment where enemy air or air defense isn't messing with you. And air supremacy is the ability to conduct a war where the enemy isn't messing with you. So let's get off the, anybody can look up the joint dictionary and find the definitions, but think of it that way. It is possible that neither side has air superiority. If you look at 1965 over Vietnam, which is when the SA-2s first appeared and when the first fighters were shot down by guided missiles and when the first weasel kill happened, which was 22 December 1965 by Al Lamb and Jack Donovan, just to get that out there. 
neither side had air superiority. But the Vietnamese were denying air superiority from the ground. That's what you're seeing in Ukraine right now. Most of the situation near the borders, or I should say near the line of conflict, is where neither side has air superiority. Both sides are able to temporarily generate local air superiority for missions, but sometimes they they think they have it and they don't. It's tough to tell right now, but in the in the north, up around Kharkiv, south of Kharkiv, I would say that the that neither side is likely to have air superiority. And in the south around Kherson, it looks to me like the Ukrainians are able to generate local air superiority because of their seed efforts. But that is so opaque to me right now, I could be wrong. It could be that we're in a neither side has it or either side can only generate it for a short time. Both sides are using air power. I reasonably see more reports of the Ukrainians using air power because they will advertise it. The Russians should be advertising it and they're not. So I actually think the Russians are backing off and moving aircraft farther away because they're afraid of getting caught on the ground by HIMARS. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm just collating some of the questions that are coming through. Give me just a moment. All right. So from from a tactical point of view then, um early on in in the war there were some reports of uh, some air to air engagements. You've already talked a little bit about the challenges of uh, well you haven't talked about the difficulties of challenge, uh, or the challenges of IFF, but you have talked about you would hope that they would be running IFF. Um the Su-27 certainly of the Ukrainian Air Force have done work with the Air National Guard, the F-15s, um, uh, uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, what do you think those first few days looked like then? Because there's not, I don't, I don't see a lot of information coming out in terms of what actually happened. There was this um, persona, the Ghost of Kiev, which I think everybody realizes and is recognized as being a, a, a propaganda tool. Uh, but what was going on, and what are the challenges, or what do you think the challenges were of that? Um, two sides going up against each other with the same, effectively the same equipment. I mean, you know, Su-34s and so on is not the same, but you know, Su-27s and uh, and so on. So this is a worst case situation. So when you build an airspace control plan, you would like to have a defensive plan all laid out with your airspace. And a couple of the airspace control measures you're going to have, one is called a MES, a missile engagement zone. And that's where your missiles are going to shoot. Another is called a FEZ, a fighter engagement zone, and that's where your fighters are going to engage. If you combine the two, one, you're nuts, okay? But that's called a JEZ, a joint engagement zone. I have never seen a joint engagement zone um, work when I've seen it tried at Nellis. Uh, you always end up shooting down your own guys. And so it kind of becomes like a training environment where everybody is using the same equipment and the same gear and you know everybody else's stuff and you're right i mean f-16s fighting f-16s you get your radar warning gear shows an f-16 those are all the kind of problems that both the russians and the ukrainians had to deal with 
And I don't see any evidence that either side was uh, managing, had, had a, a well-managed air battle by a command and control element. Having said that, it would be very difficult to tell unless somebody, you know, flashed their underwear and said, this is how we were managing it. Um, so I just can't infer enough about the early air-to-air -air engagements. I can guess that they were confusing, that guys that, that the Russians, I think, might have been at a disadvantage because they didn't do the many-on-many -many training that the Ukrainians were starting to do and had been doing with U.S. and NATO forces. They hadn't played in their exercises. When the Russians do an exercise, like Zapad 21, which was the exercise that, that was the precursor. Most of that was in Belarus and, and Western Russia. Uh, we, the Russians released a lot of propaganda videos, but and they did have air intercepts and so on, but that stuff in Russian model, that's scripted. So when faced with an unscripted situation where you've got multiple guys turning, you've got a one-seat cockpit, you can keep eyes on one guy, you know, your paint jobs aren't going to be noticeable at, at appreciable range. So you've just got silhouettes. I think it was wickedly confusing. And we may never find out how much friendly fire there was in that mix, but I'm certain it was there. So questions then about the, the Western input um, around things like weapons and intelligence gathering. So you and I spent an hour or so talking the other day about, I don't know, about Aaron well, more than that, I don't know how long it was, but talking about harm, and you, you gave your assessment of how you thought that had been integrated onto the MiG-29. Since then, we're seeing photographs of Su-27 carrying harm as well. And um, so, so obviously, it's a wider effort. Um, the first question is, I'm not going to say who asked it, but I wanted to just to ask you this because um, it, the answer made me laugh and also because it's counter-propaganda. But one person had asked any idea why those harms kept dudding. Um, and whether there was an explanation for that. And this was off the back of seeing some photographs that had been put onto uh, social media showing the back end of a harm. What was your answer to that? Well, so the the first harm picture I saw was a fake. It looked like a wind tunnel model in which the back half had been put in the, some uh, in a damaged building with a rock covering the front half. But the later photos we saw, we saw the back end of a harm. It's like, why are these dudding? Well, the answer to why these are dudding is that's the rocket motor. You have the rocket motor, you have the fins, and then up front you have the seeker, the control method, and the warhead. So if you see the back end of a harm, that's because the front end exploded. <laughs> if you see a whole harm lying on the ground, that's a dud. If you see the back end, that thing exploded. Because the warhead is not designed to throw fragments back. It's designed to throw, really, uh, fragments out in a pattern that's essentially hemispherical. Uh, you can easily essentially have the only damage to the back end be the impact damage after it smacks into the ground. There was a question. Um, we're not going to, I'm not going to deliberately, I'm not going to repeat this stuff we talked about in our last conversation where you really do go into detail about how that, that harm integration could work and some of the un unclassified details around the missile itself. But there was a question I saw. Somebody had posted a panzer, a picture of a panzer, I think, had been bowled over by what they said was a harm. You, what was again? Your some people said, well, they, you know, it's harm's got a tiny warhead; it couldn't possibly do that. What, what were your thoughts on that, man? So I've I've seen two views of that. Neither of them good enough to get me a definitive answer. Um, so I, it could be a number of small weapons. 
I don't know how unstable, how top-heavy the SA-22 was. Okay, there looks like burn damage to the cab, so I suspect ammunition. I didn't see tons of fragment holes, which I would have expected from a harm that had detonated at a distance. The It was suggested it was a HIMARS hit, but a HIMARS hit on a target that mobile, you know, is... It might not have been mobile, right? It might have been sitting in one place long enough for a HIMARS to get it. That's a 300-pound unitary warhead, and I would expect it to do a lot more to a vehicle than that. So my best guess, and let me emphasize the portion of that phrase that's most important, is not best, it's guess, is that that was a harm that was contact-fused. And so that basically the harm slams into a target with a ton of kinetic energy, actually megajoules of kinetic energy at speed, uh, on a contact fuse and we're not going to talk about harm fusing but there is a contact option and that that essentially rolled it over and that the fragment damage was not observable the reason it rolled was because of kinetic energy that's going to be the reason it rolled regardless I'm just trying to guess on what applied the kinetic energy Yeah. Um, so that that's a wild ass guess it might not have been a harm I want to think it's a harm because I want harms to land on panciers because it's their job and it makes them happy Let's go with harm until we know otherwise. Yeah, I, I call it arm kill. Casimir had asked uh, again on the Discord channel. He'd asked whether, uh, you know, now that we know that there are a limited number of harms, presumably on um, available to Ukraine, what would you be choosing to target those harms against? I mean, assume uh, made the assumption uh, that there are more systems that you could go after than you have harms available to you. But if you were in charge, what would you be targeting first? So this is totally away from what I was taught. So when the U.S. had the electronic combat triad, right, we had the 111s to jam the acquisition radars, we had the EC-130 compass call to jam the comm and the nav systems, and we had the F-4G to blow up the threat radars. In the absence of that triad, I think the best bet for Ukraine and the way I would have planned it is I would have targeted the acquisition radars like Tin Shield or possibly even clamshell or big bird if they're using it or any of the the modern variants like that where the radar is surveying a wide area and the reason i would do that is because your target trackers your shooters have a very limited field of view and if you take away the acquisition radars they become more vulnerable that to something like a high mars or you know to a harm themselves and if you don't have a good air situation picture, you can't then intercept or arrange for an intercept of a Ukrainian aircraft, particularly one that's flying low. So personally, I would target the, the long range, you know, wide field of view acquisition radars to make room for my other weapon systems to do their jobs. It's classic defense suppression. Nux had asked, I think, Stubber, you may well have answered this question a bit on our last conversation, but he had asked about the fact, obviously, the older versions of the Harm have an INS, and you can tell them where your their their target is, where you think it's located before you, you launch it, and presumably that not being something that the Ukrainians can take advantage of at the moment. Would that be correct, or could you program it on the ground and still shoot it in the air with a set of INS coordinates for it to point at? Don't no. Um, I I know how the handoff work would work the handoff word would work from an F4G. Uh, and 
it would hand a bunch of target data off in the process of the handoff word. But because I don't know how the pre-programming is, is working and what the handoff word looks like, I can't even speculate. Uh, but I don't think they're shooting stupid. Hmm. So I would surmise that there is some way uh, if you're going to take off pre-planned anyway, at least to put a starting point, some kind of, of reference on where to go to, but it's not necessary. Because? Because the harm is designed to be able to operate if you don't hand it target location data. Uh, align with that, he recognizes this might be a sensitive question, but he did conclude with the question as to whether the missile was any good or would remain any good if the uh, emitter signal was lost. I suppose that's a function of how close it was when that happened. Oh, well, the harm is designed to do bad things to people uh, in a dynamic electromagnetic environment. Let's just say that and let it go. One thing we haven't we haven't talked about yet, and this doesn't strictly fall under the Western weapons or Western intervention uh, question but drones and of course tb2 which is turkish um maybe we start big and go small so big drones like tb2 what is your assessment of the impact that they have had and should the russians really have taken these things out very rapidly the russians did take them out very rapidly People kind of got a mistaken impression of the TB2, as near as I can tell, and I'm, I'm putting thoughts in other people's minds, so advanced apologies. TB2 has a bunch of SAM kills. They started racking up SAM kills in Libya. They continued racking up SAM kills, particularly SA-8s in Nagorno-Karabakh. And then you saw them dropping on SA-11s uh, and SA-15s during the push on Kiev. So the, the SAM systems that were hit in Libya were not necessarily at their best. Uh, provided to militia-type forces, not necessarily capably operated or adequately maintained, um, and didn't apparently have the situational awareness they'd wanted. The SA-8s, the TB-2 actually overflew them. Uh, and overflew their radar scan volume. They could fly at a high enough altitude that the SA-8 would never see that high because they were never designed to see that high. And the, the Azeris knew exactly how high they needed to go because they owned SA-8s. In the cases of the SA-11 and the SA-15, which you saw in the, the, the push on Kiev, particularly in March, they were out of gas. No gas, no power, no radio, no radar, uh, and you're sitting where you were when you ran out of gas. <laughs> and of course they got killed. And, you know, any any TB2 operator worth his salt, and there's obviously a bunch of guys with some significant talent uh, that sees a SAM vehicle is going to drop a laser-guided munition on it. You, you can't help yourself. Um, you know, the next best thing is something like a rocket launcher that looks loaded because then you get the best secondaries. Uh, and I saw one where a guy got a two-for-one, TB2 operator. Uh, there were two vehicles parked next to each other. Drops a small munition on one and causes it to catch fire and probably puts holes, fragment holes in the missiles on the launcher next to it. 
and is still filming when Nat cooks off as a secondary. He got two vehicles with one weapon because they were parked too closely together. Once the Russians got fuel and pulled out of Kyiv, uh, TB2 losses started racking up, and the Ukrainians stopped talking about them, and we see the daily TB2 Sam kill. So the Russians did take them seriously, and they did shoot them down. And it's this small, cheap, semi, you know, low-tech drones like the Orlan 10, and they will shoot a man pad at it, or they will shoot an SA-8 at it, and they will take it down. Basically, both sides understand tactically what the bean counters do not. Bean counters think, I don't want to spend an $800,000 missile, missile against a $100,000 drone. Yes, you do. Uh, and air defense operators will, and they have, and they will continue to do it. The value has nothing to do with your money versus money calculation. It's that that drone is an eye in the sky, and you cannot afford to have it there. So the air defenders will target drones, and they will target you know even the relatively smaller end of the scale down to the Orlon 10s. The other thing is, for both the Ukrainians and the Russians... If you hear a drone, that's probably the first noise you hear. A little while later, the next big noise you hear is going to be incoming artillery fire. Hmm. So speaking of uh, man pads and shooting them at drones, I'll be honest and say I'm not very well versed in this at all, but I have noticed, and there's a fairly, I think, well-known uh, video of a one of the Russian helicopters, one of the Russian attack helicopters being shot down, its tail being severed by um, what I understand was a British man pad or a British surface to a short-range infrared surface to a missile. What is the impact of that influx of Western or more modern man pad um, vehicle-mounted short-range IR systems been, do you think, on that? You know, you already talked about air superiority not being there, but Su-25 still flying, helicopters still flying, and of course, the presence of drones. What do you think those those the influx of those missile systems has done in terms of changing the way the Ukrainians fight, or what sort of advantage do you think it gives them? Um, I think it's changed the way both sides fly. Uh, certainly, in terms of altitude, um, in terms of separation between aircraft, because we've also seen Ukrainian films where they bag one Russian helicopter and they don't bag the other one because they were not flying close together. So I, I think both sides have gained a good bit of threat awareness, and I think it has effectively suppressed both sides' air power application up at low altitude on battlefield targets. Uh, and I think that has helped, I don't want to say, it, it has probably influenced the decision of a lot of weapons employment to be done at longer range. There's no sense getting up close and personal. One of the interesting things I saw today uh, from Ukraine's standpoint is that they've added uh, laser-guided missiles onto their uh, a couple of their aircraft, Su-25s as a matter of fact, which implies that either they have a laser designation uh, capability on their Su-25s or they're relying on ground designation. Uh, and in that case, they're, they're definitely looking at a standoff munition where hopefully you can stay out of man-pad range and not have to go in with a with a non-precision weapon because if you have to go in with the rockets and the cannons to hit a point target you've got to get close and if you can stand off 10,000 meters with a laser guided weapon 
that's going to make you much happier. This is a very interesting thread, and, and it aligns with some of the other questions that have come through in the channel um, today and also previously on the Discord channel around closed air support. Famously, something like the A-10 as the, the GAU-8, it's a close-in weapon system. That's where uh, you've been in Iraq and Afghanistan, but that's what the, that's what the guys on the ground talk about, the, the BRUT. You know, that's what they want. And standing off 10,000 meters may not be an option. Where does that then leave? So having seen how, you know, you talked about line of sight change, uh, rate, line of sight rate, um, where does that leave Western forces and the Western approach potentially to a conflict against a peer adversary that's armed with those sorts of systems? I saw today, for example, Poland talking about buying uh, 90 Apaches or 100 Apaches or something like that uh, and thinking about the possibility then it would have to get in up close and personal for fighting. Do you think that the West has good enough infrared countermeasures, directional infrared counter countermeasures countermeasures capabilities generally to be able to obviate that threat or do you think that actually a rethink will be required and, and new technology will be the answer? I think tactics are the answer. Okay, the human element. I don't think the technology is is nearly as important in that. So one of the things that, when you looked at the de when you look at the development of U.S. attack helicopter operations, you'll see you know post Gulf War and 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 you know second Gulf War. The Army had trained to do a lot of hovering, okay, pop up above a tree line or even be behind a tree line while somebody with a longbow radar popped up, took a look, you shot a bunch of missiles. The Marine Corps variation of that was never bring your helicopter below 100 knots so i i've only done close cooperation with marine corps helicopters hunter killer kind of stuff and they just stay on the move and i think that makes a huge difference in survivability uh then we have seen two alligator helicopters shot down by anti-tank guided missiles by the ukrainians because they were doing the hover thing so when it comes to high threat close air support, and I will argue there is no such thing as high threat close air support. The when you get into a, a, an environment where the threat element uh, is high, you have to keep moving. But that doesn't mean you have to keep moving at at extremely high speeds. So again, the the Su twenty five is being used by both sides. They're still throwing it into the ground support. They both obviously feel that they get something out of that. And so something that is a, you know, that moves at fixed wing speeds, that is fairly rugged, and that has two engines, let me emphasize that again, two engines may be important because we've seen photographs from both the Russians and the Ukrainians of Su-25s coming back after they took a hit. So there's also not only the tactics and the technology, there is sheer durability and uh, battle damage resistance, which is something you design in, you don't bolt on. Speaking of which, let's let's just get this question out of the way then, because it's been asked a couple of times, um, including by somebody on Discord, and I'm really sorry, but I don't have it in front of me in terms of who asked the question. Um, but A10, there was some talk a few months ago about the Air Force finally working out a way to get rid of its A10s, to give them to Ukraine. That turned out to be I don't know if, if it was completely false or if it just didn't happen. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. What's your take then on, and you're not an A-10 guy, so you're maybe sort of talking uh, based on 
sort of assumed knowledge in some respects. But what's your take on the A10 versus Su-25? Would, would putting A10 on the battlefield make a difference? You talk about survivability, ruggedness. They both have that reputation. Um, would you think the A10 do any better? Yes, the A10 would do substantially better because it has the sensors and the standoff capability for precision that the Su-25 lacks. So it can simply stay farther away from the fight. Uh, the the A-10 is, in any respect you want to name, superior to the Su-25, and particularly because the A-10 community, in terms of U.S. A-10 guys, is so good at their job, because it's all they do, that you'll get effective operations. And, and you mentioned close air support. Let's understand here that neither Ukraine nor Russia does Western-style close air support. Although the Ukrainians are building to the capability. And it would not surprise me, by the way, if the Ukrainians do close air support with their special operators and we don't know about it. But as far as having, you know, your your uh, joint terminal attack controllers, your JTACs embedded through Ukrainian army, that doesn't happen. So their soft might do it. But they're they lack the kind of precision capabilities and experiential depth that a Western practitioner would have. And, you know, the, the over the last 20 years, the U.S. and uh, the ISAF guys have become very good at close air support. Hmm. And that is still an aspect of air power that the Russians have never done. And the Ukrainians will eventually clearly grow the capability to do. But if they're doing it now, they're not advertising it. And if they're doing it now, good on them. But was... the, the A-10 gives you durability and it gives you standoff, but uh, that durability and standoff can go away in a well-trained, well-equipped air defense environment. So you should think that an SA-19 or an SA-22 with a 30-millimeter cannon, four of them, would tear up an A-10. And you'd be right. But that's on paper. If your crews aren't trained to do it, and they don't do live fire, they don't understand their system, then they're not going to be as effective. I mean, the reason the, the Russians went to 30 millimeter guns was because they realized even while their 23 millimeters were tearing up Israeli aircraft over the Sinai in 1973, Russian gun designers had already come to the conclusion that 23 millimeter was not enough gun. So as the Ye-10 was being built to, to kind of shrug off, uh, heavier rounds the russians were building systems with even heavier rounds than that on, on a similar topic uh, there was advocacy uh, well actually so um vladimir uh, was was asking for the ukrainians were asking for Zelensky was asking for aircraft and they were asking for a no-fly zone earlier on in the conflict and of course those didn't come to pass but even i, I follow general dave deptula um on various social media platforms even he was asking two or three months ago you know to get ukrainian pilots over and get them into f-15s and f-16s and send them back i i asked him actually on uh, on a social media platform how that would work he never responded but would it work uh, we're six months in now if we had we the west had taken some ukrainian pilots early on and shoved them into a couple of f-16s or you know some a-10s or f-15s or whatever would they be now at a point where they could deploy to back to their country and be effective 
they'd be at a point now where they could deploy back to their country. It is not a fast transition. So the B course for a freshly graduated pilot coming out of pilot training is going to be six months long. And that individual is going into an environment where there are experienced instructors, there's a course, there's a maintenance enterprise, there's a squadron structure. And when that individual shows up at their squadron, they're a nugget. They are the most likely dudes to get shot down if it comes to it. Because remember, when you look at Vietnam and the Air Force analysis after Vietnam, they found that the vast majority of aircrew that were shot down were shot down inside their first 10 missions. That's why Red Flag was designed, was to get guys through all the stupid mistakes. And you don't go to Red Flag fresh out of your training unit. So if you take an experienced guy and a capable guy, put him in an unfamiliar, you, you know, even a more capable aircraft and throw them into the fight, they're going to get slaughtered. You just need time. There is no substitute. You have to build an air capability in terms of your personnel. You cannot buy it. So, however, keeping in mind that as part of the aid packages, the idea that we would take Ukrainian pilots and maintainers and weapons loaders and so on and train them up in the U.S., that's already you know, on the Hill, people are talking about it. I don't know whether or not the bill's been passed as part of this year's national defense authorization, but it might still be in there. And then you have to start a build-up process. But there is no instant switchover from one kind of airplane to the other. The the Poles, uh, God love them, they went straight from MiG-29s to F-16s. And that was a hard path, and it took them the better part of a decade. Just as, as a quick interlude, just to remind everybody at home, you are more than welcome to like this video. I can see only 72 likes and we've got 180 people listening in. That should be, uh, those two numbers should be the same. So please go ahead and like the video if you, well, if not, if you think it's shit, then just say, just, and then go away. And leave a comment and fuck off. Um, so, but, but also as an interlude, uh, Single Sprockets asked the best question of the night so far. Which was um, Star Baby? Which weasel would you prefer to go to into Ukraine with, F4G or F16CJ? F4G, hands down. That's I mean that's not even a question. Uh, two seat Ewo in the back. Uh, you know, plus it, especially if it's an Ewo as as genuinely studly as I used to be. I wish there aren't any of anymore, but you know, there could be again, if we actually trained EWOs in an EWO fighter. Yeah. The F4G hands down, um, understanding that, that there's going to be some, some trade-offs that go with the F4 airframe and that, uh, I'm going to need somebody with some better air to air missiles than a pair of aim seven F's. If there's an air threat, unless it's a dumb air threat, I'd be happy to get, you know, to shoot a dumb guy. We're at 90 minutes, by the way. We are at 90 so, minutes, yeah. How many, how many viewers do we have? Uh, we've gone up to 189 now, so... You expected, like, you told me numbers in the teens. 
So that means we can't cut these people off. Keep no. it coming. Please these, these, these people are all lost. They're looking for a different video. Uh, they just can't find it. So um, that's what's happening, I think. Well, we're 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 coming to we're coming to a point where we're almost we're almost uh, reaching the end of our thematic um, approach, and I think we can then probably at the end just go through. And I, I know there's a bunch of people who are asking questions. I'm trying to get them in. And I'm trying to do it in a way that doesn't mean we're going back and repeating what we talked about an hour or so ago. So if you don't get your question asked, I apologize. But I'm going to go through right at the end and we'll just go through and, and, and ask. But um, one of the things we haven't really talked about, well, we haven't talked about at all. And um, certainly it's a sensitive topic. So you will no doubt tell us whether or not you want to talk about it or not. But Western intelligence support and uh, Vedran Kolak um, uh, says Ukrainian forces are clearly backed by U.S. NATO. There's a rivet joint above Romania and a global hawk above the Black Sea, presumably right now. Um, we can see that through Flight 24, um, Flight Radar 24, I think it's called. It's actually quite interesting. We know all the call signs. Absolutely. You can see all the tracks. It's fantastic. Um, yep. And it says he's saying that these two fly uh, 24-7, unlike the Russian A-50 AWACS, which only occasionally shows up. That's a, that's a really interesting observation. It's not really a question, but... What do you think? So maybe it's a stupid question. I'll ask you. What do you think then is the is the impact of that Western intelligence support? I I suspect it's huge. I don't actually know about the flow, but the fact that they're there and that the U.S. claims to be sharing the intelligence is one thing. Let me just first start off by the A fifty doesn't matter. There's no air battle for it to manage. Manage what you're looking for are the coots. Okay, uh, okay. so. You're looking for your old turboprops that are both your radar birds and your elint birds. Those are the guys you're looking for as an equivalent to uh, the rivet joint. It's entirely possible that a rivet joint can give a, a heads up to a guy on the radio. Same radio frequency, you know, vacuum comes up, makes the call, been there, gotten it. Um, it's not sensitive in any way. The rivet joint guys have been providing tactical support to real-time operations for decades. I don't know whether or not they are, and I don't know what that intel stream is. So the official position of the U.S. government is we provide intelligence support to the Ukrainians, and um, that could be anything. So remember that a, that a rivet joint was designed as a strategic collection platform. It wasn't designed for tactical use. It was designed to go up, listen to people, categorize their radars, learn how their radar works, record all that data, improve the library, and then go and do it again over and over and over for years. Their ability to do real-time tactical intelligence evolved uh, because they were there. I mean, they were up in the air. They might as well get on the radio and do something with uh, their indications. So it's entirely possible that they are doing multiple things, that they are feeding the U.S. intelligence machine, that some portion of that is going to be provided to the Ukrainians, and that there's a possibility of real-time intelligence. But that is purely speculation on my part. People often talk about the targeting cycle and the importance of knowing, you already described it in a way, talking about knowing where your target, target is and uh, knowing the particulars around it. Do you think that the Ukrainians have a native capability to generate a, or create a targeting cycle that's good enough to do some of the attacks that we're, we're seeing without support from outside? I don't... That That's kind of unassessable, right? Because I can't tell. I, I, if you'd asked me that six months ago, I'd have said probably not. But if you had asked me 
two weeks ago whether or not they had the capability to plan and execute a two-front counteroffensive, I'd have said no to that too, and I'd have been absolutely wrong. So what I will say is that it clearly does not pay to underestimate the Ukrainians. And so I would go as far as to say that if you know they can't do a, a, a quick electronic targeting cycle, that it's a very short period of time before they can, with or without NATO support. Let's talk sexy. Let's talk logistics. Logistics? Yeah, it's, okay, it's, let's talk logistics. So there's a really great question from 172nd Airwing here on the channel or the chat function uh, on YouTube. He says, um, do you think Russian logistical underperformance in this war has highlighted the value of red flag fighter weapons school and other training investments by western militaries that's an interesting question um i'm going to take red flag out of the equation because red flag you don't really get to do interdiction you kind of simulate it but you're just i mean if you're going to go out and hit a target right you're going out on the range it's the same range that you and you know several generations of guys have gone out and dropped things on the range so you don't get to engage moving targets, etc. And you don't have to plan any of that. It's all pre-planned. Where I think the Ukrainian campaign, which has been very interdiction focused, has refocused attention on how effective air interdiction can be, or when you're not doing air interdiction, how effective air support to interdiction. But the bottom line is, the Ukrainians have been doing a credible interdiction effort since the first day when they could not oppose, directly oppose the Russian advance on Kyiv. They moved around the sides and they hit fuel trucks and they hit ammunition and that worked. And it worked as an enabler because not only could the Russians not go forward, they could not go back and they could not go sideways. And in the meantime, as they all run out of fuel, and start getting frostbite because they can't run their heaters, it forces them to disperse out of the vehicles. Now you've got an armored column with zero fighting power and you have a TB2 overhead because you have no air defenses. So to turn the question on, on its head, it, and I wrote an article about this, uh, how air power enthusiastic enthusiasts forgot about interdiction on War on the Rocks. Interdiction is key to constraining the enemy's ability to fight and to maneuver and the Ukrainians have planned it well they have executed it well and they are continuing to execute it well and we are seeing that even in their ground campaign in the pushes up in, in the northeast where they are clearly moving to seize lines of communication and the railhead and get control of the bridges one way or another, at least be in a position to deny crossing of the bridges. That's all classic interdiction work, and they are doing it well, and it is working like a champ. I talked to somebody in the first couple of weeks of the war who um, was in a position to know, but he said to me that on day one, the Russians run out of chaff and flare. And I wondered, you know, there's all those videos of those helicopters going to Homstall spewing flare and so you, you kind of know there was a reason for it and a couple of them get bagged and and so on um but do you think and maybe it touches on what you were talking about earlier in regards to 
you know, sort of the Russian approach to things. Do you think that the lack of chaff and flare after 24 hours of the of, of day of, of the first sort of attack is indicative of a logistical issue, or is it more likely to be around the fact they thought they were going to be welcomed as invaders? The Russians had said for some time that no Ukrainian would shoot a brother; they would lay down their arms and, uh, and in some instances, would would greet them as um, saviors. What, what what would you put that down to? Is that logistical? Without more evidence, I'm not even willing to accept the premise that they ran short on chaff and flares because I saw after the first days, and we saw lots of flares on the first days, but I saw plenty of flares. I, I, mean, I watched video of what is clearly a flare save okay, by an alligator as it flies out of a man pad envelope and defeats the shot. That's after, by the way, his wingman had been put into a tree line. Okay, The guy flies, and he's popping flares for all he's worth. He did not run out during the time frame of the video. So I, I don't want to dispute the there was a shortage, but I saw, from my limited point of view, no evidence that there was a flare shortage, although I've heard the same thing. Um, if there's a flare shortage in the airplanes, it's because they didn't buy enough. It's not because they didn't ship enough to the front. Um, it's because they don't have the, the magazine depth uh, to work it. But, you know, the Russians really learned about flares in Afghanistan. And they worked like a champ, and we saw them work. I, I, I wish I'd been able to recover the video, but I couldn't. But day one, I watched a helicopter come in. The helicopter's coming in a hostomel, and I watched a couple of smoke trails that were clearly pulled off by the flares. Hmm. Or they were RPGs. There's another possibility there is that they weren't guided to begin with. Um, but either way, there were flares coming, and I saw two shoulder launch shots miss. The, the Russians understand that flares work, they, I, I can't imagine that they underinvested in them, particularly because they designed so many aircraft with flare launchers and they, they designed bolt-ons. I just don't see it being a logistical problem where chaff and flares was the end game that there weren't any. That's fair enough. I mean, you can. I'm only you're asking. Uh, I'm asking you to comment on what you uh, have seen and and uh, know about. So that's a fair enough response. One of the things that that I observed in those videos seem to be that they were on an automatic mode because all the helicopters go at the same time and they yep. are, are profuse in the number of flares that are ejected. Uh, is that a... Because my understanding of, of, of Western doctrine is that those automatic systems don't actually get used in that kind of automatic mode. What, what does that say? Um, it says that your automatic modes suck. Um, the problem with the automatic mode is that the false alarm rate on the sensor you use to trigger it is too damn high and that you can't tell the difference between something that's fired nearby and something that's fired at you and that's just it's been that way so you know in strike eagle we never ran it in auto because you would pry i've seen guys dispense flares on the tanker because they had to switch on the wrong <laughs> position right that that will wake you up um it doesn't matter how tired you are when they, you know, when you're off the wing of a tanker and number three's refueling and a, a, a burst of flares kicks off and lights up the whole universe, boy, that'll get your heart pumping. But uh, typically, the because the false alarm rate is too high and an automatic system will kick out too many flares, you have some kind of semi-automatic or manual consent so that you don't just do exactly what the Russians did which is dump all your flares on the ingress to Hostomel, and what now? 
Um, let's talk a little. We're going highbrow. We've gone from sexy logistics to highbrow discussion around sanctions. But Pyro 111, and anybody who's listening to this who hasn't watched my interview with Pyro and Super, Pyro was an EF 111 guy and Super was an EWO um, on that platform. Um, go and find it on my channel. It's fantastic. It's probably the best EF 111 content that is out there. Sorry for the um, sidetrack there, Star Baby. But so Pyro had asked whether or not you were keeping tabs or whether or not you were familiar enough with the Ukrainian theatre to talk about um, percentage change in Russian AOB since the Crimean airbase explosion. And that was presumably the one where a bunch of Su-24s and some Su-30s got hit. And there was a question, was it special forces? Was it high miles? Was it, you know, whatever. Um, did, did, did you notice or have you had enough, um, do you have enough information to be able to observe a change in order of battle since that event? No, I can't. I, I can't track. And even even the Oryx folks can't track the change in the Russian order of battle uh, because we don't necessarily have a good idea of what we started with and what was operational. That was something that that's a case where OSINT is probably not going to cut it and you're going to need some secret data. However, having said that, um, what I did see, you know, and it's kind of in the rumor, it's rumor intelligence was that that was a Naval aviation brigade that was hit and that the Naval aviation essentially stopped flying for a couple of days uh, because of those. What I'm now wondering about is whether or not the aircraft that were destroyed were flyable in the first place. Because all of those guys were in revetments in a in a kind of closed-off area, and the active aircraft that are seen on the satellite photos are all lined up wingtip to wingtip on the flight line. Hmm. So as much as a great coup it is to destroy a bunch of those aircraft... I'm wondering if those aircraft were operational to begin with. Well, that... But the other effect it might have had, and there's a there's a couple guys that are actually using commercial satellite photos to show who's moving to which bases and what activity is like. Uh, I think that that pushed the the Russians into realizing that none of their forward bases were safe and because they have limited air power moving it back. So I think it's not that their air order of battle was decreased by the attack. I think it's their sortie rate and sortie duration that was effectively decreased by that attack because some of the forces definitely not and not just the ones in Crimea moved back into positions where they were less vulnerable. Mm. Well, that, that is a nice segue then into the actual sanctions-related question that Pyro had asked, which was whether or not economic sanctions are going to impact Russia's ability to replace their combat losses. Um, it was interesting. So so uh, Pyro asked this question in August. We've been talking about doing this podcast for some time. So he asked the question in August, which was, uh, at the time, that was the most recent big event, I think, the uh, hit on that airbase in Crimea. But uh, what do you think uh, the impact of sanctions will be on Russia's ability to replace their losses. There was there was talk a couple of weeks ago about them recruiting another hundred thousand soldiers. We don't know whether or not that's to replace uh, attrition from the war, or whether or not that's on top of what they already have. Uh, do you think they're in trouble in that respect? I think the effects of sanctions are devastating, and so 
Um, if you want to look at the big economy picture, right, and I, I'm a poli-sci and history major, so I'm not an economist, Yale has done a series of reports where they're monitoring the status of the Russian economy. And you can do a search for Yale Russian economy and you would bring up the reports. And they believe that the sanctions have effectively been crippling when you look at them as a long-term aspect. And they're looking at trends, right? They're They're not looking at numbers and they're not either at individual numbers and saying this is the answer they're looking at the trends and the big picture rather than just analyzing are there still important export flows so those are guys that are enormously complicated what we do know and rusi the royal united, united services, services institute, institute yeah. the rusi guys who write for a mass audience really um have done a couple of papers. One is talking about the Iskander missile system, but another is talking about the source of all the microelectronics that the Russians have. And the I was shocked to find that the majority source of Russian electronics in their weapon systems is the United States. And it's down to a couple identifiable countries. And it's not even close. And for people that think all their you know, electronics come from China, China's in the single digit percentage category. Uh, it's the Western nations that provided most of those electronics. So if the sanctions can effectively cut off those normal streams where dual-use components, literally like a, a field programmable gate array, uh, an FGPA array in a microwave can be repurposed for a cruise missile. And by the way, we now know what's in their cruise missiles because we have samples of them. And you will see that I, I think that the sanctions will effectively destroy the Russian industry ability to rebuild with advanced equipment. And what that means is no night vision, no encrypted, super fast frequency hopping communications. Radars are going to have a problem. Digital signal processors are going to have a problem. Uh, your automated command and control systems are going to have a problem. I mean, if you look at, if you take a look at films of Russian command and control systems, You'll see an awful lot of Panasonic tough books. Those are in their air defense vans. They're in their UAV control vans. They are the guy, the tool that you use to drive the robotic thing that you've never seen on the battlefield around. Uh, the Russians have the capability to build some pretty advanced stuff in the lab, but they do not have the manufacturing capability to do it large. There's also somebody... Just, there was an accidental fire early on in one of the Russian rocket fuel and rocket propellant plants. It just, I mean, smoking, obviously. That is going to also affect their ability to rebuild munitions. They've never had the ability to do good optical components on a mass scale. So now if, the, if we have, in fact, cut off the supply of French optics, that will have an impact. Um, they will still be able to generate infantrymen, and they will still be able to put them in BMP-2s with no night, no viable night vision capability. But this is going to completely wreck their modern forces. That's quite a, a, a bleak picture for them. Oh, they are so screwed. Um you know, they're 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 military theorists, and I'm thinking uh, Alfred there, uh, Mahan, or Mahan, I'm not sure how you pronounce that. He talked about a fleet in being, but what he's really talking about a threat in being is that a a threat that is not used 
and so you don't necessarily know all of its vulnerabilities, hmm. remains a threat as long as it's intact and functional. You know, even if you don't know the exact parameters of the threat, you have to honor it. They, they've shattered the world's impression of their equipment, their training, their officership, their planning, their intelligence. I mean, this is just a way to, you know, flash your underwear to the world and they all realize you're wearing scratchy burlap. And that is just not a good way to go through life. And so I think that not only will the Russian economy be shattered and will the Russian military be shattered, but this threatens the stability of the Russian Federation as a federation. Uh, it it It's bad. And, you know, one of the things that we saw emerging today or even this week is we saw one of the councils of deputies, I believe they call them, in St. Petersburg voted seven to three to uh, call for Putin's removal. A bunch of deputies in one of the Moscow districts did the same thing yesterday. And these are guys who are publishing it. They're not doing it in secret and going into a closet someplace. They're publishing it. The Ring Road was closed about four hours ago around Moscow. And the square in uh, the center of Moscow, I don't know which one because there's a bunch of them, that's been closed to vehicular traffic for hours. Uh, there were rumors about six hours ago on Twitter that nobody could confirm of tanks in the Moscow vicinity. Uh, yeah, so if I were you know, any form of Russian political leadership, I would stay away from windows, even if I lived in a frickin' basement. Yeah, it seems to be an awful lot of defenestration. Uh, okay, that is, uh, I think, pretty much all the pre-prepared questions we have. What I'm going to do now is I, I won't take any more questions. I'm um, just going to take the list as it stands, and I'm going to go upwards. So we've gone through, I think, in a fairly systematic order and talked about different themes. So we're now going to be all over the place, but we'll see where we get. And let's do another, are you okay, another 10, 15 minutes to do that? Uh, 10, 65, 75 minutes. That's what I, I, that's what I just heard. Yeah, fire me up, okay. man. I can't believe you didn't say. I so. get paid the same. I get paid the same regardless how long this goes on. All right. So, um, Pete Karagianis asked, and again, sorry for my pronunciation. He asked, after, after all this, Star Baby is over. Do you think the Ukrainians will host a pierogi flag to teach some of this to NATO? Pierogi flag. Pierogi flag. Do you think that would happen? Like a red flag, but for NATO to come to Ukraine and um, them to transfer some knowledge as to their experiences. That would be a great idea, but it would be an exercise. You would want to call it like pierogi East. So the, the NATO exercises are typically called things like cameos, which actually stands for something, or we give them names, you know, and often they're computer generated, you know, so they're, you know, flaming aardvark or something equally pulled out of, uh, you know, something or they could be something horrible like mushy peas or something like that. But uh, salty demo, salty nation, ample train. These are all NATO generated code names. So, yes, they should absolutely afterwards uh, uh, host a, um, you know, a, a exercise. Have pierogi. That's it. We're going to have in there in our code name. Have pierogi. Uh, but uh, you should combine it with an air show, uh, you know. We shouldn't be chauvinistic about this and say that we taught the Ukrainians everything they knew or everything be they know because we didn't. Hmm. And so there are, I think, significant lessons learned that if 
particularly the Americans, can come off their normal cultural arrogance high horse to be learned from Ukraine. Uh, and so I think an exercise scheme, um, really, I think that in the greater NATO context, if any country has earned their way into NATO ever, it's Ukraine. Ian Matthews has asked, you touched on it a little bit, but I'm going to ask it anyway, uh, give us a, 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 an expedited answer. So Russian bombers, are the Russians scared about losing a bear blackjack or backfire to Ukrainian air defense? No, they are probably scared about losing one of those aircraft to their own air defenses. Because in Georgia, they lost three backfires to their own air defense. Um, so I would, uh, uh, that's kind of a flippant answer. They're definitely afraid of losing them to Ukrainian air defenses as well, because they're not going close enough to the borders to be threatened by them. Now, the the other side of that, though, is that they don't need to. Their air-launched cruise missiles have sufficient range to hit the targets. And if you look at the, I looked just today at a cruise missile count, all cruise missiles and all ballistic missiles all rolled up into one. The majority of those were in Donetsk Oblast, hmm. a tactical use of their you know, operational strategic assets, which is another thing that's probably not smart. Um, and if if that count, which comes from the Ukrainian side, is is accurate, they don't need the bombers don't need to be anywhere near the border in order to employ those weapons. There's a there's a bunch of questions here, and uh, Scotty, thank you for um, handling those uh, around uh, Wild Weasel. So just to point out to everybody, we're going to do this again, but for Wild Weasel. Probably won't be this year, and um, more likely early next year. But but it will happen. So we will take your questions. Come to the Patreon. Um, come to the Discord channel and uh, and interact with Starby maybe directly if you can't wait for an answer. But uh, we'll do an AMA and we'll we'll answer your questions there on Wild Weasel generally. Uh, ben Ben Bear Tracks has asked the most general question of the evening, which is a word about Belarus. Belarus is probably legally a co-belligerent. And so the Ukrainians have elected to let that slide. And I think that Belarus has elected to also let that slide and kind of moved into a position where if we don't do anything stupid, people will not pay attention to us and forget it ever happened. So we have definitely seen shots taken from Belarus territory going into Ukraine, uh, surface to surface and surface to air. And they allowed, although how much, how it essentially would have been impossible for them to say no because they're an occupied country. Uh, they allowed forces, Russian forces, to invade uh, Ukraine. So Belarus is an interesting conundrum. And I think at the moment, they're laying as low as they possibly can and hoping everybody forgets. And I guarantee you that neither the Ukrainians nor the Poles are going to forget a damn thing about how this all started. You, uh, this has been asked earlier in the um, the chat here on YouTube, so I'll ask. I don't know exactly where the question is or who asked it, but can you can you give us some commentary from your point of view on that really long range shot then from Belarus, uh, you know, potentially S three hundred shot that that hit a Su twenty seven over Ukraine um, over, I, over I Kiev? Sorry, because I couldn't. I couldn't even get good. I, I, I heard about it, but I couldn't verify it. I I 
I could not get the kind of confirmation I want, even from circular reporting, on that the event occurred. What I can say is that it is technically possible and is well within the range of the system. And that if you did not understand you were in you were being threatened from Belarus, you could easily have eaten a missile at medium altitude. Okay, so Baron asked whether or not it's possible for Russia to recover air superiority by just pouring in reinforcements for, um, from other parts of Russia, or are the current losses simply too great for them to recover? I don't think they're necessarily too great to recover, but they'd have to throw... Uh, remember that their numbers are not high. When you, when you look at... Uh, the production run of a modern aircraft, or, or not so much the production run, but the numbers that are bought in a Russian service, you see a lot of high two-digit, low 100 kind of buys because they haven't had the budget. And so without knowing how much has been lost, and remember, they're still flying Soviet-era stuff. They're still flying MiG-29s. They're still flying Su-24s. They're still flying Su-25s. This is all old stuff. But even the upgraded Su-25s were only upgraded in small numbers. So they could throw more in. I don't think it would help them in the air superiority realm because I think they've probably lost the cream of their pilots. And so I think you end up looking like the Luftwaffe late in the war where you can throw stuff in and all you're doing is killing your pilots and trashing your airframes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Matthew Gonzalez has asked, Hey, Star Baby, regarding your piece, The Shape of Air Power, and tactics used in Ukraine now, are there any thoughts on what future system acquisitions would look like for Ukraine, given their current tactics? So that's a very interesting question. So this week, the, the Ukrainian chief of staff actually answered that, that question for us by saying what uh, the future procurement looks like. And in many respects, they want more of what they're getting, although they wish more tanks would show up, right? So the only, and I say, Western tanks, but the only NATO tanks that appear to have showed up on the battlefield for Ukraine are Polish T-72Cs. Uh, everything else that Ukraine appears to be using is uh, either Ukrainian or the Russians donated to them. So I saw a chart today, by the way, it said the biggest, uh, in terms of monetary value, the largest contributor of security assistance to Ukraine is actually Russia. <laughs> um... <laughs> So, but the other thing that the general said is long-range strike. You wanted long-range strike capability so that you could hold targets deep in Russia at risk as a deterrent. Hmm. So, again, what the West thinks Ukraine ought to have and what Ukraine wants are not 100% uh, in G. So I expect them to get Western fighters and I expect them to be trained by Western nations. Um, I my bet is that their their first modern fighter is going to be an F-16 because why not? Yeah. And it's it the the later model S the F-16s that are available to them are are a far cry from the early F-16 alphas. They can definitely get a capable aircraft, and given time, not in combat, to get experience in that, they'll build a force. It may take some time, but expect their aviation to change. Uh, we've already seen their artillery change. Uh, we're going to see modern armor. We have seen the infantrymen well-equipped and using smart tactics. So I think you're seeing an institutional change. You're seeing a 
Uh, General General Hurtling, by the way, uh, former UCOM commander, he's he's up on Twitter, has been watching the Ukrainians for 20 years, and he was one of the folks very early on that said, do not underestimate Ukraine and their capability, because whatever old picture you have of them is wrong. So we're seeing not the beginning of the Ukrainians becoming a more capable modern force, we're seeing the middle or the late middle of that occurring. And what they will end up with is not only uh, a bunch of systems, and they'll do the same thing every other organization does after a war, right? They're going to pare down the things they can't afford to support or they have in too small numbers or they don't need or they don't think fits with their model. They're going to end up with a modern force that is ridiculously combat experienced and experienced in the logistics to support combat and the planning to execute complex maneuvers at the operational level and the ability to maintain and the combat medicine, uh, they could easily emerge from this as the most capable military force in terms of ground operations on the continent. Although NATO members will be reluctant to grant them that. So I think a couple more questions, two more questions. So Jezza and Zed asked, um, it sort of ties in with what you talked about right at the beginning, but I'll ask the question anyway. Um, what has the Russian precision bombing, bombing capability been like? Uh, or are they stuck? Oh, this is great. It's been crap. So the Russians have GPS-aided bombs, and they have used them, and they use them in exercises, but they have not used them well. And by that, I mean, you can have all the precision you want, but if you don't have a good targeting scheme, then that precision is no good. So the precision bombs really emerged because we needed to hit the Thanhoa Bridge and bring that sucker down. And a bridge was a hard target to do with iron bombs. It was very heavily defended. So that's what the, the bomb was designed for, was allow you to get a military effect you could not get with massed non-precision weapons. But you knew the target. We knew the value of that target. The Vietnamese knew the value of the target. That's why they defended it so well and for so long. And so absent a credible targeting scheme, those precision munitions don't do you any good. The other thing I learned today from an engineer who I'm not going to dime out because he's from a country that he's worried about is completely penetrated by China. But he said that when you looked at Russian radar seekers for the cruise missiles, the precision, that they were crap. And so when you look at a Russian cruise missile, why are they hitting shopping malls? And why are they hitting apartment buildings? And why, God help them, are they hitting toilets? I am not making this up. Do a search for cruise missile strike on toilet, and you will find numerous recorded cases of cruise missiles hitting like beach toilets and stuff why are they doing that so the explanation that was given to me and i totally believe the guy that gave it is that the russian glonass sucks okay and i've got a glonass receiver by the way because you know why not it's gps and glonass and i would never select glonass because it's crap uh but of course i'm in north america so it might be better in europe but GLONASS is not that great. Old satellites, you know, four generations, short lifetimes, uh, etc. The INS on a cruise missile is probably not an INS. It's probably an inertial measurement unit. And it's not that good because it needed to be cheap. 
and a good cruise missile size INS can run in the Bucks, although they have big installations. And the missile seeker, the radar seeker, you know, the INS gets you close, the radar altimeter keeps you at altitude, the missile seeker has a wide field of view, but he says it tends to glom on on the return with the biggest magnitude. And so the things that are at risk are steel-roofed concrete structures, particularly if they are Soviet-era concrete. Apparently, Soviet-era concrete was built with iron or slag. And so with a high iron content and a high roof, the largest radar return may well be your apartment block or your beach toilet. <laughs> and that's why that element of precision attack has been less than what you might have wanted from it. So they have precision attack munitions. They have been disappointing. There are technological limitations to the system, but it's also planning. If you don't have the intelligence to assess what your target is, if you don't have a campaign plan to assess what the value of your target is, then your precision employment is going to suck. And theirs sucks. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah, I love the bit about the iron ore slag in the concrete walls. So really, um, you know, while I fully encourage Ukrainians to go to the beaches, uh, I definitely pee in the water. No question about it. <laughs> so just, just before I ask uh, the last question of the evening, then just, just a reminder to everybody I said right at the beginning um, about the Cornwall Aviation Heritage Center. I'll put a link in the description of this. If you're listening to this in like 2024 or something, don't bother because either it's been rescued or it hasn't. Um, but if you're listening to this around about September 2022, which is when this is being recorded, uh, please go to that website and uh, sign the, um, what's it called? Oh, it's an, an appeal. It's a petition. A petition, you know, just to say don't close it. It's a fantastic museum. So um, last question then, which is from Detlef Croesi, which is whether or not you had noted a difference in performance between the air defense units of the Russian aerospace forces and those of the ground forces. I can't tell. Um, most of what the information flow I've been focused on is the destruction of the long range stuff. And uh, those batteries belong to the aerospace defense, not army ground defense. Um, you know, so the, 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 for people that aren't familiar with that. So the SA-10s, 20s, the long range, S-300, S-400, belong to the aerospace forces. And those are not, those are designed as a strategic asset, meaning they move and they maybe they defend an area. The army has things like the SA-12 or the Ante-2500 or the SA-21 or their long range moving defenses. And I haven't seen any evidence that the long range moving defenses are out there. But then you go to SA-11, SA-15, SA-19, SA-22, which are the Army's moving air defenses. And what I've seen the most of those things, and that includes this week, is those things being captured. Uh, so there is something wrong. And again, watch for it this week. If you see Russian artillery being captured or artillery command posts or counter-battery radars or, or air defense vehicles, and you will see all of that happening right now, it means that something went wrong with their mobility doctrine and how they were how they were positioned and how they were utilized because those guys should have run. You should never be in a position to capture it. Even better, I saw a great film, I think it's from Kherson, of a Ukrainian tank. It gets to direct fire range with an armored, uh, it's called a Mista, a Mista B. 
which is a self-propelled armor howitzer, and the Ukrainian tank hits it with the main gun. And it's so close, you can't even see the Mista explode because the muzzle flash from the gun of the tank is in the way of the camera. So you just see the, the, the after two seconds of explosion, pieces and parts. You should never have an artillery piece that's supposed to be 4,000, 6,000 meters back firing over the heads of your own troops be in direct fire range. That's bad. Hmm. So in terms of how are the operators doing, the operators in the push on Kiev abandoned SA-19s and SA-15s in place. We saw them be towed by tractor. I'm still crying because Ukrainian farmers captured an entire platoon, four SA-19 Tunguska vehicles, and they lined them up and they set them on fire. And I'm in tears because I would personally have written a farmer a five-digit U.S. dollar check to get that to the Polish border. Um, if for no other reason than to have one. Yeah. But I, there would be better uses out of it. So um, there is something again wrong with the enterprise writ large. And I think, uh, I rather suspect that the Russian armies or Russian ground forces air defense has been part of the long slide that's evident across the board in all the Russian military competencies. Everybody who's ever watched one of my videos knows that when I say it's the last question, I'm lying. Uh, because while you're talking, I'm thinking of others. Uh, and in this instance, I've seen somebody else post a really good point, which we haven't touched on. So I want to do, I've got two questions and, and then everyone can go and enjoy the rest of their Saturday. I can go and have a glass of wine because I'm doing this sober. This is this is water. Um, so oh, after the last yeah. the last incident, you I wanted was, to make sure to get that out verbally. Let everybody know that yeah. you're sober. Because I I do know what a cat is, and I wasn't drunk. <laughs> so anyway, um, this this is a really good point, and it's been raised by Patrick Beck sixty eight. He says this has been a twelve hour daytime war only. Um, has that surprised you? And um, does it say that the U.S. and NATO ability to operate at night is unique? It's a great question. So it hasn't really been a 12-hour war. Um, <laughs> it definitely hasn't been a 12-hour war in the last four days. The Russians made a bet on night vision in the 1970s and 80s to go with uh, near-infrared which is what we call night vision goggles. Okay, so light intensifier technology, where they, at the time, appeared to have parity with the U.S. And that meant that they could only see with illumination, particularly really takes moonlight, or they had to put infrared spotlights. They used to, if you saw a spotlight on the front of a tank, and they're largely gone, but when you see that, like on North Korean tanks, they're all still there, that's a, probably a near-infrared spotlight. And it's designed to put enough light out there in that band so that you can see, but it only gets you a couple hundred meters on a good day of visibility with your light intensifier equipment. They made that bad bet and they never recovered from it. So when the US and NATO went towards thermal systems, which don't require light, those are the heat-based systems, because then anything generating heat is also a light emitter. Those are the mid-wave and long-wave infrared bands. And those that we, that technology took off. So the way the Russians got that technology into their systems is they bought it from the French. Uh, 
And so the Catherine FC was the, the T-72B3. It was a French system and they got a license to build it. But they didn't have the industrial capacity to go on that. And that, you know, that system was was a couple of years old. So that's kind of like a 2003. It's 20 years old. So the Russians did not have and never really got good night fighting capability, except when they bought NVGs on the commercial market and gave them to Spetsnaz and paratroops. Hmm. Um, they did, by the way, in, in uh, Zapad 21, they did a night air assault. They did a night drop. Um, so they didn't write it off. The Ukrainians, <laughs> their initial solution to not having night vision capability was to fight in the dark. But they still had thermal systems on their anti-tank uh, guided weapons. So that's why you saw a lot of, early on in the war, you saw a lot of anti-tank guided missile teams using a, a Stukna, um, a skiff anti-tank guided missile, because they had a, an infrared sensor that was co-located with the missile on the tripod, and a guy looking at it with a laptop that was cabled to it. So that was not only a weapon system, but they also used it as a sensor to gain situational awareness. So the Ukrainians always had a little bit more night vision capability, and now you see guys with night vision goggles, and you also see guys that are just operating at night um, without necessarily having the best night vision gear. I saw a BMP uh, with its low-light gear, old-style Ukrainian BMP film came out like three nights ago, and it is absolutely suppressing along a Russian defensive line. And the guy is just five rounds, move the gun five rounds, move the gun five rounds, and is doing traditional suppressive fire at night. So to bring that around to answer the second half of the question, which is, is NATO's typical night fighting capability an advantage? It's a huge advantage. One other side thing that I learned is, and this is from Russian complaints before the war, their helicopter pilots thought their helicopter night vision was crap. Why? They they didn't feel that it worked well. They didn't feel that it was reliable. They didn't feel the image intense, the image quality was what they should have been getting out of night vision. And if you look at a lot of, uh, take a look at the attack helicopters, you will often see two balls, okay, mm. and and two two sensor balls, optical balls, each with a bunch of big windows. Uh, one of those is often for the pilot as a terrain guidance, and the other one is for the gunner as weapon system guidance. And all of those are at least 10 and possibly more years behind frontline NATO stuff. Okay. And then. And you had another one. This is the final question. Um, so, one thing I'd noticed uh, early on when the Ukrainian side was posting videos of downed aircrew was what appeared to me i don't know what it is and i'm keen to get your opinion on what it is um but it, whether it's a lack of discipline or it's an arrogance but these guys didn't appear to be dressed for the weather they didn't appear to be dressed in a way that would suggest that they would be able to uh, escape evade resist you know do the whole sort of you know run away and, and hide under a bush until someone came and rescued them type thing so they would be wearing just a flight suit with a t-shirt under it bearing in mind this is february when it kicked off um, and the in the case of the naval aviators they'd be wearing their bright orange day glow um, water survival suits uh, and in addition to that there was um, you know sort of there were personal artifacts that identified them there were flight plans there was information about 
the the names and the numbers of the people on their squadron. There was just a whole host of stuff going on that, you know, you hear about U.S. aviators, Western aviators, um, sanitizing, taking off wedding rings, maybe even removing patches and things before they go flying. Is that uh, something that surprised you? And does it indicate anything about the discipline of those aviators, their mentality, their mindset? What do you what's your interpretation of those things? It indicates that they did not expect to be shot down and that they had not planned that far ahead and that there was no real consideration to actually going down in hostile territory. So let me tell you, I have also seen this in the U.S. Air Force. So our patches on the flight suits are Velcro and all that stuff comes off, you know, by anybody that's got half a brain for two reasons. One it's identifying material. But secondly, you get a reflection off your brightly colored patch in the cockpit, off the canopy. And that's a total pain in the neck. So have your patches off. But I have seen guys, you know, on their first combat missions flying with like their squadron t-shirt underneath. And, you know, in the winter. And it's like, dude, you are not thinking this through. And sometimes you need to sit the lieutenant down and have a little talk. So I flew every mission with having planned ahead of time that if necessary, I was going to walk home. Um, I had a plan of action, and it, it was written down the way we normally do this. I had a chart that, that was appropriate for ground operations. I had studied the terrain. I knew what landmarks there were so I could find myself. I knew it was in my survival kit. I knew what was not in my survival kit, and I added that in. So I typically carried extra ammunition. I carried a flexible water bag. I carried vitamins in case I was down for a long time and I was eating grass. At least I wouldn't have a vitamin deficiency. Uh, definitely additional. I carried an additional water purification kit. So I wasn't dropping tablets in. I actually had a camping pump filter. And this stuff went into like G-suit pockets and stuff like that. We had our blood chits. At one time, I carried gold coins to buy myself out of trouble. You do not, however, if you're smart, fly with your wallet or your credit cards because you don't want the additional stress if you're captured of thinking that some dirtbag is running up a bill on your credit card. So also when I went outside the wire in Iraq and Afghanistan on the ground, um, my wallet and credit cards were stashed, you know, hopefully like near an ammo can, something flammable that was going to hurt them. Uh, and I, I just had my ID card. So that's what I carried my ID card or my ID card and gold coins. And that's what I went out with because I felt as a weasel that if I got shot down, the helicopter was not coming for me. I had to get to somebody somewhere that was safe for a helicopter to pick me up. And that drove a certain amount of planning. And so if I see a guy that's flying in his T-shirt and his bright orange uh, flight suit, which I love my bright orange flight suit, by the way. I only bought one after I retired for flight test ops because I always wanted an orange flight suit, and now I have one. And it matches my helmet, and my daughter hates it. But if I see a guy in an orange flight suit in a combat environment wearing a t-shirt, I know he didn't think that through, and he didn't expect to ever, ever have to go down. On the bright side, though, at least they had made an ejection decision. They did not ride a damaged jet in. So there was some thought to getting out of the airplane and when they would do that. But yeah, definitely I'll show you show me a guy who's wearing his squadron t-shirt in the battle. I'm showing you I'll show you a guy who hasn't thought this through. Well, Star Baby, it's been two hours and twenty minutes of um real joy to listen to you talk about 
this i mean it's you know it's not a joyous event and it's not a, a joyous thing but listening to you talk about it and dissect it and share your expertise has been um, really um wonderful to listen to so thank you for doing that and thanks to everybody yeah, at me, home for, for joining let me and, thank the yeah exactly the, the viewers at home for doing this and apologies because it's very very hard to be funny uh, in an AMA where I, I don't get to tell war stories. So what I'll try for the next AMA, which is going to be on Weaseling, is I'll try and put some funny stuff in there because, God, this is terrible. Uh, you know, I, I only got a couple of jokes. I didn't say anything especially stupid. And I was not as insulting as I usually am. Okay, now you can pick it up with your... Well, I was going to say, actually, I, I owe your mom an apology if she is listening to Mrs. Uh, Petruka because uh, I swore... And I forgot she might be listening in. So you couldn't. You were you were hamstrung really in that respect. You couldn't say all the things that maybe you would have if your mum was listening in. So yeah. So 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 repeat viewers will notice I did not at any time drop the f bomb because of the realistic possibility that my mother was listening. So in case my mother is listening, hi mom, hi dad, thanks for tuning in. I appreciate it, and I'm sorry if I taught you yet one more thing that you did not know I'd done in my previous career on, on which note we will leave it there and i just noticed i don't know how it's happened but somebody's sent some money mark brown has sent some money mark thank you so much for doing that i thought i'd turn that off i didn't know that anyone could send me money not not through um paypal that's great send money through paypal but through the uh the youtube thing so mark thanks for doing that i appreciate it yeah everybody at home thank you for joining in thank you for joining us thanks for the questions for the engagement thank you for liking it thank you for going ahead and thanks for tuning in to 10 century i hope you enjoyed this episode Feel free to subscribe, and if you're on YouTube, hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks, and take care.